the committee uh, will come to order. Uh, at the start of uh, this hearing, uh, the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues uh, will come to order, as I said. This hearing is titled, The Deepening Political and Economic Crisis in Venezuela, Implications for U.S. Interests and the Western Hemisphere. I'd like to begin by welcoming Mr. Alex Lee, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South America and Cuba, and Mr. John E. Smith, the Acting Director of Office of Foreign Assets Control. We had invited Assistant Secretary of State Roberta Jacobson to participate. We were informed that uh, she is in Havana today and she'll, she will not be available, so we appreciate you being here, Mr. Lee. So with vast oil reserves, Venezuela is one of the richest countries in Latin America. And the Venezuelan people are intelligent, they're well-educated, they're hardworking people. The evidence of this can be found in my home state, in Miami and in Doral and in Weston, Florida, where a vibrant Venezuelan community has helped build quality and vibrant communities. And Venezuela is also the cradle of democracy in South America. And that's why it is so tragic that Venezuela has turned into a social, political, and economic disaster. The reason for this is simple, because today that nation is increasingly in the iron grip of corrupt and incompetent leaders. A rich country suffering from a massive and growing shortage of food, medicine, and basic goods, to the point where Maduro has had to order supermarkets to install fingerprint scanners to enforce food rations. Venezuela has an inflation rate of over 60% among the highest in the world. Price controls in Venezuela have led to massive shortages of medicine and medical equipment. It's forced hospitals to suspend cancer treatments and all but emergency surgical procedures. Shortages of spare parts have grounded much of the bus and truck fleet, and many airlines have stopped flying to Venezuela altogether. The government, by the way, has also defaulted on several large debts. Back when they were facing elections in 2012 and 13, they authorized more inputs, uh, imports than they could afford. But when the bills came due, they stopped paying them, building up tens of billions of dollars worth of debt. The result is that Venezuelan bonds are treated as among the riskiest in the world, demanding premiums that are twice those of Bolivia, four times those of Nigeria, and 13 times those of Mexico or Chile. It is the incompetence of Nicolás Maduro and his predecessor, Hugo Chávez, that have left Venezuela in the position that it finds itself in. But instead of seeking out reforms to improve these conditions, the response of the Maduro regime has been to crack down on dissent, erode democracy, and violently violate the human rights of their own people. Here's just a brief recap of the steps Maduro and his cronies have taken to strengthen their grip on power. In April of 2013, the main opposition TV network, Globovision, was forced to sell to a pro-government owner. In July of 2013, pro-government businessmen bought Cadena Capriles, the owner of the largest daily in Venezuela, Ultimas Noticias. In August of 2013, the most corrupt man in Venezuela, and that is one heck of a title, Mr. Diosdado Cabello, the National Assembly President, used a simple majority vote instead of the required two-thirds vote to suspend an opposition deputy from office, paving the way for a series of votes to grant Maduro decree powers. In September of 2013, Maduro closes Voz de Orinoco, a radio station. He closed it for, quote, calling for rebellion, unquote. In October of 2013, Maduro restricts bulk paper imports to opposition newspapers, making it harder for them to go to print. In February of 2014, security officials working with armed pro-government thugs confront, beat, and even kill 
anti-Maduro protesters. That same month, the National Telecommunications Commission prohibits local TV and radio from covering anti-government protests. In May of 2014, the Maduro government begins to routinely block websites that are critical of the regime. In July of 2014, a Spanish investor group close to Maduro, by El Universal, one of the nation's flagship daily newspapers, and immediately the content of that newspaper changes to that one of supportive of Maduro. In August of 2014, the government begins proceedings against Radio Caracas, and it suspends an opposition radio show from broadcasting. This is just a small sampling of the anti-democratic moves and the violent moves taken by this regime just in the last year and a half. Now, faced with these long string of human rights violations and the fact that many of these violators and the people who enable them have strong economic links to the United States, and in particular South Florida, late last year, Congress passed and the President signed a law allowing the United States to deny visas and freeze the assets of human rights violators in Venezuela. And last week, the President applied these sanctions against several human rights violators. These sanctions are not against the government of Venezuela. These sanctions are not against the people of Venezuela, nor do they aim to deny the people of Venezuela anything. These sanctions that the President has imposed deny known human rights violators the chance to use the money they have stolen from the people of Venezuela to enjoy luxuries here in the United States. These sanctions also deny human rights violators the chance to travel freely to the United States. Faced with an economic catastrophe and dwindling public support, Nicolás Maduro has tried to use these sanctions as a way to deflect from these problems and rally people around anti-Americanism and nationalism. He has gone as far as to absurdly claim that the United States is in preparing an invasion of Venezuela. And he has tried to place the opposition in a position of either supporting him or being labeled as traitors. So let me be very clear. The future of Venezuela belongs to the people of Venezuela to decide via free and fair elections. The United States has no interest and no plans of imposing or encouraging what direction a free people of Venezuela freely choose. The purpose of these sanctions is only this, to deny corrupt officials and human rights violators the opportunity to buy homes, make investments, and vacation in the United States with the money they have stolen from the people of Venezuela. Nevertheless, we can expect to see more of these theatrics from Nicolás Maduro in the days and weeks to come. In fact, we've just received word that he is shopping around an open letter to the American people to be published any day now in some major American media outlet or various media outlets, encouraging the American people to stand up to their elected officials and ask them to stop picking on him. By the way, in the same letter, he accuses the United States of being involved in a 2002 coup plot in Venezuela, another absurd claim. This past weekend, he asked for and was given absolute power once again by the National Assembly. This grab for power through a, through a decree powers that were given to him. You can expect to see more of this because the declining economy and fail, falling oil prices has cut into his ability to buy support. Unable to find, here's some of the things we can expect to see. Unable to find credible evidence of coup plots between the opposition and U.S. diplomats, I expect and predict that soon you will see them produce fabricated evidence of coup plotting. You will see clandestine assassination of opposition figures. And you may even see Maduro and his cronies try to move up this year's legislative elections to capitalize on this nationalism before the popularity of his government fades even more. But no amount of repression or theatrics will solve or cover up the disaster that he has brought upon the people of Venezuela. Food seized from private stores, 
rot in warehouses because of their incompetence. Maduro and his cronies continue to manipulate currency to make money for themselves. Maduro and his cronies will continue to force those doing business with the government to use companies they control as subcontractors. And at some point this year, we may even see the gas subsidies long provided by the government either altered or removed altogether. And we will also continue to see human rights violations. The defense minister, Vladimir Padrino Lopez, has authorized the use of force against peaceful demonstrators, which has led to the murder of a 14-year-old boy. We will see more arrests, like the recent one of the elected mayor of Caracas, Antonio Ledesma, who was arrested last month. And sadly, we will see more deaths, such as one when opposition leader Rodolfo Gonzalez took his own life when faced with the Maduro decision to move the dissident leader to a cell block of common criminals. It is also worth noting some other aspects of this regime. First, the Cuban dictatorship has penetrated every aspect of the Venezuelan government. We will get into that today. Second, Maduro has opened the door to closer military relations with Iran, Russia, and China. In fact, the Venezuelan military is currently conducting exercises with visiting Russian troops and equipment. Third, the Maduro regime continues to harbor vast elements of the FARC within Venezuelan territory, offering this terrorist group sanctuary and protection. And fourth, along with Cuba, Maduro continues to aid populist anti-American elements throughout Central and South America. The people of Venezuela deserve better than this. And while the direction of their future belongs to them, we will be a strong voice in firm support of their aspirations for a better country and a better life. And we will not allow those who are violating their rights and denying them this better future, the chance to come to Doral or Weston or to Miami or Coco Plum and enjoy life with the money they have stolen from their own people. With that, I'd like to thank and recognize our ranking member, Senator Boxer, and I look forward to continuing to work with you on these important issues. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, for holding this really important and very timely hearing. And I also would like to thank our witnesses all for participating. In February 2014, thousands of Venezuelans took to the streets to protest against the administration of President Nicolas Maduro and were met with a brutal crackdown by government security forces and armed pro-government gangs. Last month marked the one-year anniversary of these widespread anti-government demonstrations, which lasted nearly four months and left more than 40 people dead. Tragically, the grievances voiced by protesters, a failing economy, chronic shortages of consumer goods, and high levels of crime, violence, and corruption have certainly not been addressed. In fact, the political and economic situation in Venezuela has continued to deteriorate over the past year. According to official figures, Venezuela's economy shrank 2.8% in 2014. Inflation rose to 64% the highest rate in Latin America. Venezuela's murder rate is the second highest in the world behind Honduras. And Transparency International ranks Venezuela as the most corrupt country in Latin America. The Maduro government continues its brutal repression of dissent by systematically targeting opposition figures, human rights defenders, journalists, and civil society activists for violence, harassment, intimidation, and other human rights abuses. Just last month, the mayor of Caracas was arrested and jailed for allegedly, and I quote, conspiring to organize and carry out violent acts against the government, unquote. 
and a 14-year-old boy was shot in the head and killed by a police officer during an anti-government protest. In response to the deepening crisis of Venezuela, Congress unanimously enacted the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act of 2014, which our President Obama signed into law in December. This very important law requires the President to impose sanctions on individuals or entities involved in serious human rights violations against anti-government protesters or on those who have ordered the arrest or prosecution of individuals for their legitimate exercise of freedom of expression or assembly. I applaud President Obama's decision to implement this law by sanctioning seven Venezuelan officials involved in human rights abuses and public corruption, and I do encourage him to continue that crackdown. The U.S. has an obligation to shine a bright light on the abuses being committed against the people of Venezuela, and the President's action sends a strong message to the people there in the government that we will not stay silent in the face of violence, corruption, suppression of fundamental rights and freedoms of the Venezuelan people. But it is also important to make clear that these sanctions directly target the perpetrators of abuses. They do not target the people of Venezuela. And as our chairman said, that is critical. We want to hurt the people who are causing all this hurt, not the ordinary people who are simply trying to survive. Today's hearing will be an important opportunity to examine the U.S. policy toward Venezuela and the role of sanctions in addressing the current economic and political crisis there. It will also help us chart a path forward in support of the people of Venezuela and their aspirations. Their aspirations that are just like all people, a longing to be truly free and truly democratic. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Our, uh, the ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee and someone who spends a tremendous amount of time on Western Hemisphere uh, issues is here with us today, and I'd like to recognize him for some comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you and the ranking member for holding a, what I think is an incredibly important hearing. There are many challenges in the world that distract or diversify our attention, but this one in our own hemisphere is incredibly important. Uh, last May, after 40 deaths, more than 50 documented cases of torture, high-profile political persecutions, thousands of arbitrary and unlawful detentions by the Venezuelan government, this committee met to review the shocking pattern of systematic human rights violations by the Maduro government, its security forces, and its judicial system, which continues today and has only gotten worse. Venezuela is awash in a culture of gross impunity at every level. Checks and balances on executive power have completely eroded. There is no accountability for the crimes against Venezuelan citizens by an out-of-control regime. It should come as no surprise, as Venezuela's fiscal and economic crisis has deepened, that the Maduro government is radicalizing its tactics. Last month, the Minister of Defense, Padrino Lopez, signed a decree authorizing security forces to use lethal force, lethal force against civilians. And with that decree came the tragic death of 14-year-old Cluverth Roa, who was shot in the head by the national police. We saw, as has been said here, the elected mayor of Caracas, Antonio Ledesma, forcefully removed from his office and jailed on trumped up charges. And more than a year after his arrest, Leopoldo Lopez, the continent's most high-profile political prisoner, continues to languish in prison without a trial, without any semblance of due process. And just last week, in an unacceptable and utterly grotesque statement, Venezuela's ambassador to the OAS 
Roy Chaderton, actually joked about shooting members of the Venezuelan opposition in the head. Against this backdrop of persecution, violence, and outrageous human rights violations, now even more disturbing trends started to emerge. Just last week, the Treasury Department announced that the Banco Privada de Andorra, B BPA, was involved in a complex scheme to launder nearly $2 billion, let me repeat that, $2 billion in funds from the Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA. PBA then moved these funds into the U.S. financial system. In December, a private jet trafficking millions of dollars in cocaine was captured in Fort Lauderdale. In September, a truck carrying $10 million in cash coming for the United States was captured in Venezuela. All of this on the top of the thousands of pounds, literally tons, of cocaine trafficked by the Venezuelan National Guard that has been seized in Europe. The United States and the international community cannot tolerate such blatant violations of international law. I'm pleased that the Treasury has named Venezuelan, senior Venezuelan officials as kingpins and acknowledged the Venezuelan National Guard is deeply involved in drug trafficking. Obviously, in today's Venezuela, we are not just watching the rise of an authoritarian regime. We are watching the emergence of drug trafficking regime involved in networks that threaten and endanger the hemisphere. So finally, let me just say I welcome the President's uh, decision to move forward with implementation of the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act, which, Mr. Chairman, you and I authored and you were deeply involved in uh, helping us uh, draft and ultimately um, move through the Senate, and I appreciate that. And the announcement last week of targeted sanctions against seven Venezuelan officials, including senior members of the military, intelligence services, and judiciary. In my view, we can go further, but this is an important first step. Let me reemphasize, these are targeted sanctions against Maduro government officials, not sanctions against the people of Venezuela. I look forward to hearing the administration's strategy for addressing the political, diplomatic, and security challenges that Venezuela presents. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, and now we're going to get to our witnesses' testimony. Just a brief housekeeping item. We will have votes, I think, scheduled at 11. Uh, there may be a need to go into a brief uh, recess for a few minutes while we go to and from the vote, but we'll continue the hearing until we conclude it. And with that, Mr. Lee, uh, prepare for your opening statement. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, and members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to speak to you uh, about Venezuela. I appreciate your interest in Venezuela and your support for U.S. assistance and our policies there. We are deeply concerned about the situation in Venezuela, where last year legitimate political, economic, and social grievances and a lack of adequate democratic space brought protests and, unfortunately, violence. Tensions within Venezuela continue to build, and the government has intensified its actions to repress dissent. The United States has called on the Venezuelan government to respect human rights, uphold the rule of law, and engage in peaceful, inclusive dialogue with Venezuelans across the political spectrum to alleviate the current tension. We have called on the Venezuelan government to release Mayor Antonio Ledesma, opposition leader Lope Leopoldo Lopez, Mayor Daniel Ceballos, and others it has unjustly jailed including dozens of students. We have encouraged the government to improve the climate of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, 
including respect for the freedoms of peaceful assembly and association. I know this committee shares our concerns and we welcome your strong support for democracy in Venezuela. Venezuela's problems cannot be solved by criminalizing legitimate democratic dissent. These actions appear to be a clear attempt by the Venezuelan government to divert attention from that country's economic and political problems. Rather than imprisoning and intimidating its critics, we believe the Venezuelan government should focus on finding real solutions through democratic dialogue. We will not refrain from speaking out about human rights abuses in Venezuela. We are joined in this by dozens of individuals and entities, including the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights, Organization of American States Secretary General Insulsa, the Peruvian, Costa Rican, and Colombian governments, and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, among others. Advancing human rights and democratic processes are a key U.S. foreign policy objective. The President's March 9th executive order, quote, blocking property and suspending entry of certain persons contributing to the situation in Venezuela, close quotes, which implements the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act of 2014, is a manifestation of our commitment to advancing respect for human rights, safeguarding democratic institutions, and protecting U.S. financial system from the illicit financial flows from public corruption in Venezuela. Executive Order 13692 is aimed at persons involved in or responsible for certain conduct in Venezuela, including actions that undermine democratic processes or institutions, the use of violence or conduct that constitutes human rights violations and abuses, including in response to anti-government protests, actions that prohibit, limit, or penalize the exercise of freedom of expression or peaceful assembly, as well as public corruption by senior government officials in Venezuela. The executive order does not, repeat, does not target the people or the economy of Venezuela. I want to be clear. It is not our policy or intent to promote instability in Venezuela or to endorse solutions to Venezuela's problems that are inconsistent with its own legal system. The United States is not seeking the downfall of the Venezuelan government, nor trying to sabotage the Venezuelan economy. We remain Venezuela's largest trading partner. President Maduro has publicly expressed a desire to improve our bilateral relationship, and we are open to direct communication with the Venezuelan government. We maintain diplomatic relations and welcome conversations and debate. We remain committed to maintaining our strong and lasting ties with the people of Venezuela. We will not, however, refrain from calling out human rights abuses and other actions and policies that undermine democracy. We hope the Venezuelan government will focus its energy on finding real solutions for the country's mounting economic and political problems through democratic dialogue with the political opposition, civil society, and the private sector. 
this year's national assembly elections present an opportunity for Venezuelans to engage in legitimate democratic discourse. And credible election results could reduce tensions in Venezuela. We have urged regional partners to encourage Venezuela to accept a robust international electoral observation mission using accepted international standards for those elections. Now is the time for the region to work together to help Venezuela to work towards a democratic solution to the challenges the country faces. We will also continue to work closely with Congress and others in the region to support greater political expression in Venezuela and to encourage the Venezuelan government to live up to its required commitments to democracy and human rights as articulated in the OAS Charter, the Inter-American Democratic Charter, and other relevant instruments. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Mr. Lee. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to appear before you today at this important hearing on political and economic developments in Venezuela, the human rights situation in the country, and the implication of these topics for regional stability and U.S. interests. I'll address the administration's implementation of the sanctions measures in the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act of 2014, which was signed into law in December. <clears throat> On March 9th, the President issued an executive order declaring a national emergency with respect to the situation in Venezuela, which is a prerequisite for the imposition of economic sanctions under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. The executive order, which implements the targeted economic sanctions contained in the act and builds on them in key respects, imposes economic sanctions on persons listed in an annex to the order and any persons determined by the Secretary of the Treasury in consultation with the Secretary of State to have engaged in or to have been responsible for certain enumerated activities in relation to Venezuela, such as undermining democratic processes or institutions, committing serious abuses or violations of human rights, limiting or penalizing the exercise of freedom of expression or peaceful assembly, or being involved in public corruption by senior Venezuelan government officials. The executive order also contains a status-based authority targeting current or former officials of the government of Venezuela which gives the Secretary of the Treasury additional flexibility to go after targets of concern for which there may be limitations on our ability to designate under the other conduct-based authorities. The President named seven Venezuelan individuals in the annex to the order. The property and interest in property of these individuals are blocked, meaning their assets within U.S. jurisdiction are frozen and U.S. persons are prohibited from engaging in any transactions or dealings with them. Last week's action imposing sanctions on seven individuals focused on those involved in human rights abuses and the persecution of political opponents connected to the events surrounding the February 2014 protests highlighted in the act. Most of the individuals targeted are currently or were formerly associated with Venezuela's National Guard, the Armed Forces, the Intelligence Service, or the National Police, members of which played key roles in repression against individuals involved in the protests. The executive order also targeted a national level prosecutor 
who was charged, based in part on implausible and or fabricated information, several opposition members with conspiring to assassinate or overthrow President Maduro. Mr. Chairman, I want to acknowledge the leadership you have demonstrated on this issue, and I note that six of the seven targets in the annex to the executive order were included in your list of individuals published last May. In addition to implementing the act, the order expands the designation criteria beyond the requirements of the act. This will allow greater targeting flexibility and the highlighting, targeting, and deterrence of additional problematic behavior that is ongoing in Venezuela. We remain committed to defending human rights, advancing democratic governance, and protecting the U.S. financial system from abuse. To be clear, and as the chairman and ranking member and fellow speakers have said, these sanctions are not aimed against the country of Venezuela. They do not target the Venezuelan people, nor do they sanction the Venezuelan government as a whole. To the contrary, this remains a targeted sanctions program focused tightly and precisely on bad actors undermining Venezuela's democracy, violating the human rights of its citizens, and diverted much-needing economic resources for personal gain, resources that could and should be invested for the public good. Turning specifically to the sanctions program's focus on public corruption in Venezuela, I'd echo President Obama, who has said that fighting corruption is one of the great struggles of our time. Corruption, beyond its unethical nature, siphons off important resources that could be used to feed children or build schools and infrastructure that promote development. It's also worth noting the long history of the application of U.S. sanctions to foreign policy and national security concerns with the Venezuelan nexus. Even before this past year's events, we have not hesitated to designate Venezuelan banks and other com companies for their connections with Iranian entities sanctioned for nuclear proliferation activities, as well as designating Venezuelan targets for their links to narcotics trafficking. As I conclude these remarks, I want to emphasize that we retain the ability to respond to events in Venezuela as they unfold. We stand ready with a powerful financial tool to deter abuses and target those who may choose to undermine democratic processes or institutions or to violate human rights in Venezuela. Thank you. Thank you both for being here and for your uh, opening testimony. I'll begin the questioning round. Uh, we'll do seven minutes since um, I think we'll have time to get through all this. Let me begin with you, Mr. Lee. I wanted to talk to you about the state political state in Venezuela. So as I've outlined in my opening statements, and so has the ranking member and the ranking member of the full committee, in Venezuela there's an increased encroachment on freedom of the press and communication. Uh, there's been an increased encroachment on the judiciary branch. It no longer truly operates as an independent branch. We've seen the prosecutorial powers used uh, to not just fabricate evidence, but to target political opponents. We've seen members of the opposition expelled by simple majority votes from the National Assembly. Um, we've seen the jailing of virtually every prominent, at some point, of virtually every prominent voice in Venezuela that opposes the Maduro government. And there's now this pattern of decree powers that have been given to Maduro, including the one this weekend. Is Venezuela still a democracy? Venezuela. Can you turn your mic on? I'm sorry. The Venezuelan electoral system um, is actually uh, quite good uh, in terms of the mechanical process. 
What the government has done is used a variety of means, gerrymandering, massive use of public funds, um, trumped up charges against key opposition people, a systematic uh, undermining of the independence of the media to tilt all uh, the electoral ground in its favor. That still does not change the reality of how Venezuelans view um, the situation in Venezuela or how they perceive the government's handling. And if you look at polling, the polling shows that the majority of Venezuelans view the government mismanaging the economy and things are getting worse. We call on the Venezuelan government to uh, announce elections. Um, we call on the Venezuelan government to hold those elections in a way that provides a political space for the opposition. Um, and we believe that if that is done, and in particular, if the international community can provide electoral monitoring of those elections, the Venezuelan people will have an opportunity to express their views. Well, thank you, Mr. Lee. And I, I appreciate your answer, and I understand that. I would just suggest that we need to view this from a different perspective, because in Latin America, there's a troubling trend, and that is people come to power through an election and then begin to undermine all the apparatus of a free society. So if, a, if I'm a member of the opposition, and there's no free press that can cover my activities because they're not allowed to operate, so I have no way to get my word out. Maduro has unfettered access to the national airwaves. I have no access to the, federal, to, to the national airwaves. If I speak out too vehemently against him in the National Assembly, I could be removed and arrested. From, first they remove you so they can strip you of the immunity of being an, a member, a deputy, and then they arrest you for it. Um, and, and not to mention that there's evidence of electoral fraud in the last elections. You combine all these things, and just because you have an election or say you had an election does not make it a free and fair election. This is the pattern that has been followed in places like Nicaragua and other places as well. There's more to democracy than just holding an election. And certainly they're capable of having a free and fair election mechanically. But when the people running against you can't go on the airwaves, can't have TV shows, can't speak out or they'll be arrested, um, the entire media is owned by your cronies, um, you have unfettered access to the airwaves, they have none, and if you're part of the opposition and you oppose Maduro, you can be arrested. Uh, this is a very, in my mind, that does not sound like a democratic society, and I think it's important for us to understand that this is the new way tyrants are now operating. They, they, they dress themselves up as Democrat, but then they end up governing in much different ways, and that's an important distinction for us to point to. I want to get to the issue of individuals. There's a number of individuals uh, that, were not on the, that were not sanctioned that I would encourage uh, us to continue to look at. For example, last year, Generals uh, Aref Jimenez and Julio Cesar Morales Prieto, who held senior positions in Venezuela's Directorate of Armaments and Explosives, uh, played a key role in their efforts to create and support the government-affiliated colectivos, where, where there was basically are irregular armed groups. Uh, the DAX, by the way, is currently led by General Ignacio Velasquez Ramos. This is a group that's been intricately involved in cracking down on dissent. Uh, there's been seven of the seven designated individuals that constitute a national security threat to the United States. Their bosses are not represented. For example, General Vladimir Padrino, the Minister of Defense, and as such, the highest ranking military officer, uh, has not been held responsible for human rights violations committed by his subordinates. 
Some of the sanctions were based on Venezuelan officials allegedly involved in corruption and illicit activities, but we didn't include Diosdado Cabello, the head of the parliament, who's been identified by defectors and others as the head of the Cartel de los Soles, a uh, drug cartel operated by Venezuelan generals. And then there's multiple print and broadcast reports, articles, and even books detailing the presence in the United States of Chavez and Maduro government officials that have become flabiously wealthy from what are alleged to be corrupt activities. They too use our financial system to transfer funds. One example is an individual by the name of Alejandro Andrade, who's a former army lieutenant and a fellow plotter of Chavez in the 1992 attempted coup that cost the lives of over 300 Venezuelans and who was later appointed by Chavez as the treasurer of the country. He is reported to be living in a multi-million dollar equestrian estate in South Florida. And there are many other former officials, bankers, and business executives also living or owning property in the U.S. that are alleged to have acquired fortunes illicitly, illicitly with the complicity of the Chavez-Maduro government. And I would encourage you to look at some of them as well. Uh, Mr. Smith, has the Treasury looked at certain financial institutions in Venezuela or the Venezuelan banking system as a whole to see who might qualify as financial institutions of primary money laundering concern under Section 311 of the U.S. Patriot Act? USA Patriot Act. Uh, Senator, I can tell you that with respect to many of the names that you talked about, we continue to investigate vigorously um, under all of the prongs of the executive order. Unfortunately, you're asking me about uh, authority, uh, the particular one with respect to the financial institution. You're asking me about an authority that is administered by one of my sister agencies, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and I can take that question back to them. Well, let me just encourage you to act on information my office has received. Uh, into money laundering carried out by the petroleum company, PDVSA, PDVSA. There are close ties, according to these allegations and information that I've received, between this organization and money laundering and drug trafficking activity. And there are a number of names that have been forwarded to us as individuals involved in this illicit activity. Rafael Ramirez, Nervis Gerardo Villalobos, Omar Farias, Carlos Luis, Aguilera Borjas, Alcides Rondon, and Rafael Jimenez Villarroel. Uh, we've received significant information about their ties uh, between the state-run oil entity and drug trafficking and other laundering activities within Venezuela. And I'll have more on this topic in a moment, but I want to recognize the ranking member. Thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Gentlemen, whoever feels comfortable answering these questions. Um, President Obama's executive order imposing sanctions on Venezuelan officials implicated in human rights violation and corruption was met with widespread criticism from Latin American nations, very upsetting to a lot of us. At a special meeting in Ecuador on Saturday, the 12 Nation Union of South American Nations issued a statement criticizing the US action as, quote, an interventionist threat to sovereignty and the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries, unquote, and calling for the executive order to be rescinded. In addition, President Maduro said he'll use next month's summit of the Americas in Panama to denounce the sanctions. What steps are we taking to engage with Latin American nations about the recently announced sanctions? Have any countries in the region expressed support for our action? Uh, I'll start, and then my colleague will okay. uh, finish, uh, Senator. We need to balance our, our condemnation of the human rights violations, which came through loud and clear with uh, the law and the executive order, as well as the 
um, various U.S. government statements over the past two years with the need to convince the region to act in Wait a minute. I just, I know you re Just tell me, are there any nations who support what we did in Latin America and what are we doing to make sure they understand that what we did was the right thing, the moral thing, the correct thing for the people of Venezuela? So, so instead of reading me something, I know it's careful. I know it's diplomacy and I understand all that. But on the ground, are we talking with our friends in the region? Because it's upsetting to me that we see so little support. Senator, you're right uh, that uh, the Latin American community uh, has uh, uh, sharply criticized um, our uh, sanctions uh, against individual Venezuelans. We have made a full court press to explain that what we're doing is represents um, our principles Good. Uh, and uh, that we are exercising our own sovereignty in not allowing human rights violators or corrupt actors to come into our country or to enjoy our financial system. At the same time, we point out that, uh, and we, we urge the other Latin American countries to provide greater efforts uh, with the Venezuelan government to try to bridge the differences within Venezuela. Okay, so just to cut through, we are working with our friends in the region to get them to understand why what we did was right, yes or no? Yes. Okay, and will the crisis in Venezuela be a priority for President Obama when he attends the Summit of the Americas? Yes, ma'am. And how do U.S. sanctions fit into a broader U.S. strategy to address the growing crisis in Venezuela? In other words, what else are we doing beside the sanctions, beside talking to other nations? Do we have anything else that we're working on? The, the greatest chance for uh, Venezuela to solve its problems is holding a credible electoral process. Mm -hmm. And for that, we need to work with the community, the international community, particularly Venezuela's neighbors. And we were encouraged that UNASUR recently, um, after its meeting in Quito, uh, issued for the first time a statement that has called on Venezuelans uh, to engage in dialogue and to hold an election to try to bridge the differences. And we believe uh, that is a positive uh, step forward. Um, we would like the, the uh, Latin American, um, our Latin American partners to more vigorously champion um, the need for uh, an electoral uh, monitoring um, mission in Venezuela. Um, but yes, we are constantly engaged with like-minded countries, and we have seen a growing appreciation in Latin America that the economic situation in Venezuela is untenable, and the Venezuelan government's effort to try to control political opposition to it through repression is only greatly exacerbating uh, the problem. Well, I want to say thank you for that. Um, I, um, I agree with you that this upcoming election is critical. It's absolutely critical. And, um, and I agreed with the comments made by my chairman here about you know, having a vote and then having someone elected and, and 
declaring martial law and taking over and saying, I can just decree this and that and the other. That's what's going on. But later this year, Venezuela is expected to hold their parliamentary elections. And opposition leaders view these elections as an important chance to gain seats in the assembly, enable the opposition to put pressure on Maduro, particularly as his approval ratings have plummeted. So your point of focusing on the election, I really appreciate that. And I think that's what we should all focus on. Because I think clearly, if you look at what the people are saying in terms of their suffering and the rest, um, this could be a very important turning point, this election, if it's free and fair. And I really am concerned about the lack of support in the region for our sanctions. And I think we should tell, as you are already, our friends in the region, this is our right as a nation not to allow people to come in here with their funding and hide their money and all the rest of it. That's our right as a sovereign nation. And if we can build support, pivot to this upcoming election, I think it's absolutely crucial. And if it's not free and fair, and if there's suppression, um, it's very dangerous. So uh, I want to, again, thank my chairman for these very important hearings and thank both of you for your contribution. Thank you, Senator Boxer. Senator Gardner. Thank you all to the witnesses for being here today. And I join Chairman Rubio and other members of the subcommittee in expressing my utmost concern about the state of affairs in Venezuela. Uh, given his dwindle, dwindling public support, it seems that President Maduro has inherited all the authoritarian instincts of uh, the late Hugo Chavez, but none of his charm. Uh, I commend the administration for imposing additional sanctions on Venezuelan officials last week, though that action has predictably ushered in a hysterical reaction from Caracas. Uh, I look forward to working with the committee to ensure that genuine democracy returns to Venezuela in our lifetime. We've had a lot of conversations uh, this morning about the elections and the, the order. Uh, and so given the U.S. sanctions announcement, the Venezuelan National Assembly, as mentioned, uh, granted President Maduro the power to govern by decree until the end of 2015. Uh, Mr. Lee, you talked about the mechanical process of elections being good or sound in Venezuela, at least at this point. Do you see, leading up to the elections, this uh, governing, this, gov this decree power? Uh, and what should we look for? What, do you see it impacting the election? And what should we look for in terms of their ability to tilt the playing field, as you mentioned, some of the things they have been trying to do in the past? Well, we're clearly concerned um, that President Maduro might use uh, his decree powers uh, in a way uh, that would complicate even more the ability to hold free and fair elections. Um, we'll have to see how he uses um, his decree powers, which last until the end of the year or uh, in, during the period in which the elections are going to be hold, held. Again, I think that one of the most effective ways to pressure uh, the Venezuelan government to do the right thing with regard to elections is to uh, encourage the uh, international community, but and in particular uh, uh, Venezuela's Latin American neighbors, to emphasize to the government the absolute importance of holding fee free and fair elections. Uh, democracy and the commitment to support democracy is not only an obligation by Venezuela under the OAS, but in many of its other sub-regional organizations that it is a member of, including Mercosur and UNASUR. 
And so we very much want the other countries in the region to try to help broker an understanding between the government and the opposition to provide the conditions for an election that is viewed as credible by all. We believe that is a solution or would go a long, long way to addressing some of the major, major problems that the country is facing. Thank you, Mr. Lee. Mr. Smith, kind of following up on those comments, what's the reaction been to our sanctions in the region and have we coordinated these sanctions with any of our allies in the region, such as Brazil or Colombia? I'll defer to my State Department colleague to talk about the reaction in the region. I will say that we do coordinate with allies in the region and allies around the world as, as we can. And so most of the time we have a, what is called a pre-notification process where we work with other countries to give them notification of what we're going to do so they uh, may not be surprised and they can work with us. Thank you. Mr. Lee, uh, do the anti-U.S. demonstrations on the streets of Caracas and elsewhere represent a security threat to remaining U.S. diplomatic and civilian personnel or their interests? Clearly, um, you know, the, the safety of our uh, staff uh, in, um, in, in Caracas is paramount, just like uh, the safety of American citizens living in Venezuela is paramount. Um, up to now, we have not seen um, targeting of Americans per se. Um, and uh, so, so for that, we're, we're encouraged. And what, have we taken any precautions? Has the State Department taken any precautions to protect our citizens and diplomats? Yes, sir. Uh, we have a system to notify Americans residing in, in uh, Venezuela whenever we uh, are aware of information suggesting um, that uh, Americans may be targeted or there may be disturbances. Um, and so we have a network that we use uh, to get that information out. Our embassy also is constantly reviewing its uh, posture um, uh, with respect to any possible disturbances. And so this is something that we just do as a matter of course. Mr. Chairman, I know we have votes coming up, so I will uh, yield back my time so that you can get some other questions. Thanks. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Lee, I, I, I listened to your statement. And I have to wonder. I don't know why one would even suggest or have to feel the necessity to say that we are not trying to promote instability in Venezuela. We clearly are not trying to promote instability in Venezuela. But if we're going to make that statement about human rights and democracy any place in the world, forget about Venezuela, we're in a sad state of affairs. This is not an American view. This is what the OAS Charter says. This is what the Inter-American Democratic Charter says. This is what the UN Convention on the UN uh, uh, Declaration of Human Rights entails. So, you know, when you say that, and then when you say, and I, I can't believe that you included it in your opening remarks, suggesting that President Maduro wants to improve our bilateral relationships, yeah, that's a good way to do it by unilaterally striking at reducing our embassy and taking a whole host of other aggressive and active postures uh, against the United States. I, I just, it, 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 it boggles the, uh, my imagination. It also worries me 
when the State Department in a different context, I know you were down in Cuba before all the announcements, I guess I should have seen your effusiveness as a sign of things to come, uh, and then see that others in the department talked about it's not who you invite to the table speaking to the summit of the Americas, but what you speak about. Well, here we are with both Cuba, which of course has no democracy and human rights, and Venezuela under which democracy and human rights are a deep threat. Uh, and I, I don't get the sense, I don't get the sense that the State Department uh, has the drive and the conviction uh, of these views by actions. Uh, I'm sure, uh, I think it would be fair to say that we allowed the Latin Americans when uh, Senator Rubio and I were pursuing the legislation which we thought was necessary to do, we were asked by the administration and told by the administration we're trying to allow our Latin American partners to get Maduro to walk and move in a different direction. Isn't that fair to say that we did try, we gave them space and time to try to achieve that? Yes, you did. Okay. And they have, did not succeed. Now, I look at the President's own declaration, which I applaud, and I look at drug trafficking. What, where do drugs end up? They end up in the streets of our cities. They end up addicting our young people. That is a national security threat. That would be whether it's Venezuela or any other part of the world. When you look at the amount of drug trafficking that is taken by Venezuela, when you look at the specifics of our own administration, naming the Venezuelan National Guard as part of this process, uh, I just don't quite get it uh, as it relates to the statements that are, are made by, by the department. Uh, the Venezuelan National Guard, members of the military directly involved in narcotics trafficking. Uh, Mr. Smith, uh, we have this $2 billion, this comes after, $2 billion. This is, I don't know about, even, in, even here, that's not chump change. $2 billion that ultimately works its way into the U.S. financial system. $2 billion taken from the people of Venezuela because PDVSA, is in essence the national patrimony of Venezuela. And I think the people of Venezuela who are suffering enormously as a result of the Maduro government would be far better off with having those $2 billion in Venezuela helping their lives. So how are we, how are we acting as it relates to these $2 billion uh, that made its way into the United States financial system? So, sir, I can say that the Treasury Department has been engaged in, in vigorous actions across the board, and uh, for many of the activities that you've been talking about, we've been working for years on nar narcotics trafficking. We've designated across the board narcotics traffickers. I appreciate when you ask about the, about the two, two billion. When you ask about the two billion dollars, that was an action that one of my sister agencies, the F Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, took, and that's the agency that I'd have to refer this question back to. Okay, so you, you have nothing to do with it's, that? It's, it's another part of my department. Okay, so you can't speak to that. Can you speak to that, Mr. Lee? No, sir. Oh, my God. We come to a hearing on Venezuela. There's $2 billion siphoned out of PDVSA, and no one's capable of responding to it. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. Uh, the... 
the actions that have been taken under our legislation, while I recognize the convenience of responding to Venezuelan sanctions against seven U.S. officials with parity, the parameters set forth uh, in our legislation and their expansion under the President's executive order leaves many other Venezuelan officials eligible given their complicity in human rights abuses, certainly more than the seven that have been named. I and other members have specifically called for Defense Minister Valdemir Padrino Lopez to be added to the list of sanctioned individuals given his role in authorizing the use of lethal force against unarmed citizens. To that end, do you agree that current U.S. law clearly leaves other Venezuelan officials eligible to be targeted for sanctions? Clearly, we have, um, as a result of the law and the executive order, uh, the authorities uh, to use against human rights violators um, and uh, senior officials engaged in corrupt action. We are. So the, you, we, it's, a, it's a simple question. I'm not asking you who. I'm asking you, do you believe that the law allows you to pursue other Venezuelan authorities who may, in fact, fall in the categories as determined both by the law and the President's executive action? Executive order, I should say. Yes. Or, Mr. Smith, if you're the appropriate person. Yes. Sorry. Yes, okay. Uh, and finally, uh, can you tell me what we are doing uh, about how OFAC makes a kingpin designation. What are the implications and consequences uh, in pursuing kingpin designations, which several people here have been in Venezuela? Sure, the uh, OFAC works with a, a broad interagency group that is specified in the statute um, to make kingpin designations. We gather the evidence, we compile it, we run it through to make sure that there are no law enforcement or intelligence equities, and then we make the kingpin designations. Uh, the president has the authority to make what are called the tier one designations of significant foreign trafficking uh, individuals or entities, and then OFAC has the authority to make the those that are tier two, the material support and others. Last year we did over 200 kingpin act designations. It's one of our most active programs, and we continue to pursue those vigorously. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll be very brief. Uh, we have a vote coming up, uh, and I would ask the panel to be brief. I just have a couple of questions. Um, first of all, it, the U.S. is enabling a, a dictatorial regime in Venezuela, in my, in my mind, uh, as it continues to routinely violate human rights affairs there in Venezuela. I would argue primarily because we continue to rely on imports of oil produced in their state-run enterprises seems somewhat hip hypocritical to me to want to limit what others are doing in Venezuela while we're quite happy to continue to import $30 billion of oil each year. It's another reason why projects like Keystone continue to be critical to reduce our dependence on oil from bad actors like Venezuela. But I want to, come, I want to go to a separate issue, and that is Cuba. You know, uh, last year, Venezuelan President Maduro referred to President Obama's shift in policy towards Cuba as, I quote, a gesture, gesture of courage, unquote. Will this opening of U.S. relations with Cuba hurt or help our situation in trying to change behavior with Maduro? And what impact will this change in Cuba policy have on our long-term uh, effort here to bring democracy back to Venezuela? Uh, well, Senator, um, diplomacy is, is not a, a one-size-fit-all. And so we basically have to kind of see where the opportunities are, 
um, make our uh, uh, decisions on what will best advance our national interests. And we have decided, for example, that it advances our national interests to combine with regard to Venezuela sanctions and reaching out to other Latin American like-minded countries to urge the Venezuelan government to meet, meet its democratic obligations. And so that is one strategy that we have used with towards uh, Venezuela. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, let me, let me get to the point. We're gonna run out of time and we're gonna have to bolt. Specifically, uh, if, if we move to a more liberal relationship with Cuba, what specific impact will that have on Maduro and his continuing dominance of his people in Venezuela? I'm not sure that there will be a direct relationship. Okay, thank you. The next is, you know, given the difficult situation in Venezuela, they have an oil economy, basically. Uh, and as I see it down there, the consumer is really not able to, to bring their economy back. But how is this going to help or hurt their financing program, PetroCaribe, or its extensive support to Cuba? I think Venezuela's mounting economic problems are manifest in itself in a whole variety of ways, but one of them clearly is an inability to sustain uh, the support to PetroCaribe like it had in the past. We have seen reports of Venezuela cutting back its support through PetroCaribe, subsidized support through PetroCaribe to a variety of Caribbean countries, um, and so that that really puts into question the ability of Venezuela to, to maintain the level of support it had promised in the past. So one last quick question. If we really wanted to change behavior in Venezuela, oil is the way to do it. I just don't believe these sanctions go far enough to really change behavior. We see it in other parts of the world, Russia particularly, when we started out with similar uh, sanctions there, had no impact. Um, Mr. Smith, what do you believe would be the impact if we really were to get serious about changing behavior in Venezuela to go after the oil? And that means that we'd have to pay a price too because the oil that we bring in, the $30 billion, is done in JVs, I think, with U.S. corporations with their state-owned uh, oil uh, enterprise. Answer? Yes, please. Um, we have made, uh, after consulting with a variety of civil society actors and political actors in Venezuela, we have made the decision that it really advances um, U.S. interests not to use sectoral sanctions in Venezuela. Um, what does that mean? I'm sorry. Is that, uh, to, that use, to use like an oil sanction. So, so specifically, we think that these sanctions will change the behavior of this uh, despot in Venezuela. We, we believe the sanctions that under the authorities that we have uh, as a result um, help highlight uh, unacceptable behavior. And how long do you think it will take to change that behavior specifically? I, I can't say. As well, reasonable. what's a reasonable person's uh, estimate? I, I, um, I, I really can't say. Well, let me ask it a, bit, a different way. So how long would we be patient to watch the, the human rights violations in Venezuela before we stiffen those sanctions? Um, we think that if Venezuela is going to stop this downward slide, it is basically through more democracy, or and and the best way to express that is through uh, holding uh, elections that are seen as credible. And we believe that the international community can play a role towards that. Um, 
I think uh, we need to combine the use of sanctions in order to, against individuals, in order to express our democratic principles. But, but we have, we I'm sorry to, to interrupt, I'm sorry to interrupt, but those, those sanctions against individuals, we have really very little evidence around the world that sanctions against individuals have ever really changed behavior. So I, again, I, I, I think it's more a question now, let's see how long it's gonna take. My question is, is what's a reasonable expectation on our part uh, of these sanctions relative to changing behavior. It's one thing to have an election as we just talked about, um, but to have a credible election to give a free vote for the people down there. I mean, what, what should be a reasonable time frame while uh, we wait for these to take effect? I can't say, sir. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm gonna wait for Senator Kane to return uh, because we're in the middle of this vote and I appreciate your question. So let me uh, Mr. Lee, just touch on the issue of human rights. They've been well documented. We know some of them have already happened. I want to inform you of a couple more that I hope that the State Department will look at closely as we continue to examine other people that can be sanctioned. The first is, have you been made aware of a facility that's colloquially referred to as La Tumba, the tomb? Have you heard that term? No, sir. Okay, well, let me tell you about it based on the information we've received. It's a detention area that's located four stories below the Plaza Venezuela, which is, seven which is a seven station where detainees are held captive in two to three meter sized rooms. They're subjected to minimum temperatures and permanent neon lighting and denied sunlight so that they can become disoriented and suffer physical and psychological deterioration. We've also received information that Gabriel Valles, Gerardo Carrero, and Lorenz Sale have been held captive in that facility and are subjected to this torture that the purpose of this treatment is to coerce from them false testimony against members of the opposition. I also want to make you aware of the circumstances surrounding the death of Rodolfo Gonzalez. Uh, the information we've received, that obviously he was an opposition activist, a senior citizen, and he was jailed in a seven facility beginning in April of 2014, supposedly for conspiring against the government, which was actually false. Uh, he, during this time, he was visited by Iris Varela, who was the minister of the national prison system, uh, days before his apparent suicide while in custody. And according to the information we have received, Varela threatened to transfer him to a general population prison, basically with other common criminals, with common criminals, not other common criminals. Uh, he was instructed uh, to gather his personal belongings, and he was even taken to a prison medic for an examination prior to this transfer. According to the information provided to us, Mr. Gonzalez's lawyer has confirmed that he was visited by one of the individuals that is sanctioned, that's a prosecutor, Catherine Harrington, who offered to improve the conditions of his detention in exchange for testimony which would incriminate Antonio Ledesma in a conspiracy against the government. So these are just two recent pieces of information we've been made aware of uh, just in the last few days that call to light the sort of human rights violations that are occurring in Venezuela. And I would encourage the State Department uh, to take seriously as, as this information comes in because it gives us more and more people that we can look at for sanctions and also to shame them publicly. These are One day we're going to have freedom in Venezuela. There'll be a, a functional government again and hopefully a better future for Venezuelan people. And these individuals responsible for the human rights abuses are going to have to be accountable for what they're doing. So that is why it's so critical that these human rights abuses be documented now so that in the future these individuals will be held to account for the crimes they're committing against the people of Venezuela. Senator Kane, I'll, I'll leave you in charge while I go vote and I'll be back. All right, so you probably have another 10 minutes of questions. If that's, if you I'll, have I'll easily occupy that, Mr. Okay. Chair. Thank you, and, and thanks to the witnesses and all. Um, the, the questions that I've been here to hear and your testimony 
I think has answered questions that I was going to ask about the internal situation in Venezuela and the relations of our sanctions to that situation and the human rights abuses. I want to talk about the relationship what's happening in Venezuela with neighbors. So in particular, Colombia, which is such a strong ally of the United States. I was in Colombia in the middle of February, and I was actually there on a day when President Maduro came out with a fairly incendiary set of statements, not only against the United States, but also against Colombia. I mean, it just appeared the, the classic situation where when, when things are going bad at home, find somebody else to blame, that he was blaming the United States didn't strike me as that unusual. That's a classic page out of the playbook. But, but it was a little bit unusual, I thought, the degree of some of the rhetoric that he was leveling against Colombia. Now, that relationship is, a, is an important one. It's a complicated one. A lot of Venezuelans live in Colombia and vice versa. Um, Venezuela has at times been sort of a haven for the FARC and at other times has helped um, advance the peace discussions between the Colombian government and the FARC. Um, a, economic challenges in Venezuela could, at an important time in Colombia, even kind of a fragile time in these negotiations, push folks across the border in ways that would be destabilizing. So I was just wondering, especially you, Mr. Lee, if you would talk about the, the, uh, the, the situation in, in Venezuela now as it might affect Colombia, who has got to be one of our best partners in the, in the world right now. Well, I think um, uh, one of the reasons um, why uh, of the three uh, foreign ministers uh, that UNASUR countries sent to Venezuela, one of them was the foreign minister of Colombia. And that reflects um, Colombia's important stake in what happens in Venezuela um, as a commercial partner, as a uh, place for in the past that have received a large numbers of Colombians uh, and a preoccupation that has grown over time over what is going to be the impact of Venezuela's chronic mismanagement of its economy and how will that spill over into Colombia. Um, an additional element in all of this is the Colombian government, particularly under President Santos, was greatly appreciative of the Venezuelan government's support for the peace process in Colombia, which has been kind of a central focus of uh, President Santos. Um, and so uh, the various examples that, that, that you talked about uh, highlight this um, cross-cutting sensitivity um, and I think probably the best way of, of summarizing it is um, what the, the Colombian government is very conscious that uh, if conditions continue to deteriorate in Venezuela, um, this will have an adverse and a direct adverse impact on Colombia. So that is one of the reasons why you have seen um, the Colombian government trying to champion the region to focus along with Brazil and Ecuador. But in a sense, out of the three countries, um, the, what happens for good or bad in Venezuela has a far more direct impact on Colombia. Um, how, do you, how do you interpret the statements of uh, uh, President Maduro kind of blasting Colombia for, you know, some of their, their own internal problems? 
Well, uh, President Santos, like uh, President Obama or Secretary Kerry, is in good company because um, there's a certain theatrical element in uh, the statements of President Maduro. Uh, and uh, you're the, the incident that you're referring to was basically um, President Santos coming to the defense of a former Colombian president mm -hmm. that, in his view, had not been accorded with the respect due to um, a former president, a former Colombian president, who was basically trying to demonstrate concern for the human rights of a key political prisoner. This question may have been asked when I was uh, overvoting out of the room. Talk a little bit about the current status of the situation with the reduction of embassy personnel, U.S. Embassy personnel in Venezuela, and how those discussions are ongoing with respect to presence of Venezuelan embassy and consulate personnel in the United States. Uh, we have proposed to the Venezuelan government um, uh, the need for bilateral discussions. Uh, we have proposed a, a team to meet with them so they can appreciate why we staff our mission the way they do and also for us to share with them how we see their staffing up here. Um, staffing in our respective uh, diplomatic missions is essentially a function of what the host government agrees to and our operational requirements. And I think it's important for the Venezuelan government to understand that we need a certain level of staffing in order to ensure the protection of our mission, in order to provide the level of consular services for Americans, and also to provide travel documents to Venezuelans who wish to come to the United States. Last year, uh, the, our embassy in Caracas adjudicated 250,000 uh, Venezuelan uh, submissions for travel documents. We might not be able to support all of those <coughs> functions um, if our um, staffing is reduced to certain numbers. Um, Mr. Smith, I'd like to ask about the, the impacts of the sanctions thus far. Um, obviously, Venezuela is dealing with huge issues because of years of economic mismanagement, and then low oil prices themselves impose a significant cost on an economy that has really leaned heavily on that resource instead of having a more diverse economy. Um, talk a little bit about, to the extent that you can, what is the marginal effect of the sanctions from our side uh, compared to the overall economic challenges most of uh, you know, their own making that Venezuela is dealing with? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think one of the most important things to understand about the sanctions and to remember and that we emphasize is that these were targeted sanctions just against the seven individuals. So I think to the extent that it would affect Venezuela as a whole um, would be any kind of concern about the, the idea that we could do sanctions, further sanctions with respect to the country there. I think uh, financial institutions in the United States and uh, around the world may be a little bit more hesitant to deal with some of the 
uh, potential bad actors in the Venezuelan uh, society and the, in the government because of the impact of the sanctions. But one of the things that we also emphasize with these um, sanctions is they were not targeted at the government of Venezuela. They were not targeted at the country of Venezuela, and they weren't targeted at the people of Venezuela. So there, there's been the, the mix of the impact. I think it would have been felt mostly on the individuals targeted and others that might believe they're to be targeted next. And, and just kind of thinking down the road in terms of the strategic challenge you have in a situation like this, while some would say sanctions against just a few individuals, that's not you know, showing the strength that they might want to see. Uh, another argument would be, look, if there is an economic kind of collapse underway because of the mismanage of the current government, um, to do bigger sanctions against the government would, would enable them to better say, oh, look, we're just having problems because the U.S. is doing bad things. Um, instead, by doing the sanctions against individuals, um, hopefully there would be more of an understanding among the Venezuelan population that the economic challenges they're facing are because of a government that's mismanaging the economy rather than because of the effect of the external sanctions. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking through that that has to be, I guess, one of the balancing acts that you are using as you decide uh, whether to make these sanctions just against individuals or against financial institutions or against the, the government itself. Am I, am I correct in analyzing it that way? I can start, and I, I would say yes, you're right. I think one of the things that people don't recognize with sanctions is that more is not always better, that there could be some disadvantages to going out with the broad sanctions uh, that would have significant disadvantages to the U.S. Um, national security foreign policy relationship, not just with Venezuela, but in the, in the region. And so what we try to do is do the correct balance to make sure that in this case, what we were doing was focusing on the bad actors, those that were undermining democratic institutions and that were abusing human rights. And the purpose of the sanctions, this first salvo was to actually show our concern with the human rights situation in Venezuela and really call attention to that. I would just add, um, the action that we took against the seven, uh, and we, we focused on seven very emblematic uh, individuals um, who clearly had um, significant ties to human rights violations or corruption, and we were very confident in being able to highlight that. And that message was clearly heard but we believe that we need to combine a statement of principle and one of the ways of, of demonstrating those principles are the use of targeted sanctions against individuals, but also trying to work as best we can with like-minded countries in the region to use their influence uh, to try to help uh, the Venezuelan opposition broker uh, a relationship uh, with the Venezuelan government that would allow the political space for a credible electoral outcome in the next uh, National Assembly elections. This particular message of working and trying to promote that discussion is much more uh, effectively done by other countries and ourselves. And so we have to work somewhat indirectly through other countries to help that process. 
Um, so it is a combination of these statements of, uh, of uh, sanctions against specific individuals, but this is all in the context of working uh, collaboratively with like-minded countries in the region to try to influence the behavior of the Venezuelan government. We have been having, uh, obviously, and will continue to have significant discussions about Iran um, in this committee and in this ch uh, chamber. Talk a little bit about the current Iranian-Venezuelan uh, relationship, the degree of Iranian influence that you see in Venezuela these days. Well, we are very vigilant about this particular relationship, um, which basically um, uh, came into full fruition under uh, previous Iranian and um, Venezuelan presidents. Um, for the most parts of the agreements that have been uh, reached by the two countries or statements have been mostly on economic or trade sets of issues. Um, the overwhelming majority do not seem to have gone anywhere. Those joint ventures that have, take, that have been established, uh, we hear indirectly that lots of the Iranian companies complain of the conditions to operate in Venezuela like just about any other uh, company uh, finds itself in Venezuela. But our particular attention is on Iranian activities whether of uh, their um, uh, intelligence services or um, engaging in possible activities in, in money laundering or um, uh, possible uh, actions for uh, avoiding um, the sanctions on Iran. So these are all areas that we pay particularly close attention to on an ongoing basis. So I would say, yes, this is a source of concern, um, and this is, a, this is a relationship that we pay a lot of attention to. Um, and the last question I would like to ask is, is a little bit about Venezuela's influence in the region. Um, Senator Gardner was, I think, being comical when he said uh, the current Venezuelan leader didn't, you know, had some of uh, 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 President Chavez's weaknesses, but none of the charm. Um, clearly, Venezuela was, was a regional player because of the strong personality of the previous leader, but also because of the ability to use the resource of oil to win friends and influence people. Uh, their own economic challenges have made that harder to do. Lower oil prices have complicated that situation. And I think the point that Senator Gardner was making that at least in terms of sort of the charismatic outreach to other nations, that is not the current uh, president's strong suit. But, but that's my perception from afar. Talk a little bit about Venezuela's ability to project influence uh, in the Americas uh, during this time of deepening economic crisis. Well, I think um, Venezuela's ability uh, to exercise influence has been gravely undermined by uh, its serious economic problems and um, uh, its uh, uh, ongoing efforts to try to stave off um, a uh, balance of payments uh, crisis. And you see this being played out in a variety of areas. Uh, Venezuela is unable uh, to support Petro Caribe in a way that it had before. 
Um, it has cut back significantly on some countries. Um, Venezuela no longer ha can exercise the financial largesse that it could before. If anything, Venezuela is essentially staggering from one financial crisis to another, trying to scrounge up enough money in order to pay for desperately needed imports for its population. And for the first time, we're hearing serious concern about Venezuela's ability to have uh, enough reserves to pay for um, food imports. So all of these things conspire to basically put Venezuela very much on a defensive. It is one of the reasons for the Venezuelan government trying ever so hard to uh, obfuscate what is going on in Venezuela, to try to shed uh, and put the blame on outside actors, of which we are only one. There are a variety of other uh, countries or uh, presidential leaders from other countries that have been identified as doing a variety of imaginary bad things to Venezuela. So all of this is, is I think, a reflection of the uh, turmoil uh, that, that Venezuela is finding itself. Um, and just kind of order of magnitude, um, you know, the lower oil prices has been a very good thing for the world and for the United States generally. It doesn't mean every aspect of it is good. So Colombia, a, a great ally, lower, lower oil prices hurts, hurts them. Um, but they have a more diverse economy. Talk about oil revenues as a, as a chunk of the Venezuelan uh, economy or a chunk of the Venezuelan governmental budget. Um, give me an order of magnitude so that I can understand how much this drop and, and likely somewhat long-term low price is going to be uh, affecting them. Well, Venezuela depends 95% of its earnings from the oil, uh, its oil sector. And chronic undercapitalization uh, of its oil industry, um, wasteful government policies, price controls, uh, labor controls, um, a three-tiered exchange system that puts a premium on insiders taking advantage of it, um, all of these have conspired to make the Venezuelan economy um, go into recession last year, even at a time when oil prices were about $100 a barrel. Uh, now, with oil prices half of that, um, Venezuela is facing a really major uh, uh, foreign exchange problem. And Venezuela imports now uh, far more than it did 10 years ago. So it imports virtually everything, all of its food stuff, um, all of it, most, almost all of its consumer goods. And so you have seen a kind of a progressive deterioration of Venezuelan companies to manufacture things because they can't get the dollars necessary for the inputs to manufacture things in the country. And, um, and so you're, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing widespread shortages and chronic shortages in the country. Now with the drop of oil prices to $50, um, that can only get infinitely worse. Uh, the IMF, for example, projects that Venezuela will have a con suffer a contraction of 7% this year. Already, um, the inflation rate is projected 
to go from 64 to eight, over 80 percent. Um, so we're dealing with a very chaotic um, Venezuelan economy and a Venezuelan government that seems struggling to try to take any effective measures to arrest um, this, this, this downward economic um, slide. That, uh, and I just wanted to underline, that I, th I think I heard you right, um, it, kind of the statistic, 95% of Venezuelan government revenues are derived from the oil industry? Yes, sir. Um, last question, you know, talking about the prospects for parliamentary or assembly, legislative elections, you know, given the, I mean, just again, from afar, but just given the recent activity, the imprisonment of uh, political opposition leaders, even some with, you know, significant post-mayorships of major cities, um, the, the emergency decree entered into earlier in the month giving the president, you know, nearly complete power. I mean, you'd have to be pessimistic about the, we, we got to keep pressing, but I mean, the, we shouldn't be sugarcoating and suggesting that there's a high likelihood of elections that we will feel are free and fair. I mean, given all of the actions that are un, being undertaken right now, uh, it, it, wouldn't the prospects of uh, elections that the global community would look to be free and fair happening this year seem really, really slim? Well. Senator, this is obviously a, a major concern of ours uh, because we do see free and fair elections as a necessary first step for Venezuela to try to dig itself out of the situation it's in. And so that is the reason why we highlight the importance of these elections. We fully recognize um, and are concerned about uh, President Maduro's uh, acquisition of emergency decree powers we will have to see how he utilizes those. But this is why we go to all of the countries in the region to emphasize that the region as a whole has an obligation to champion a democratic solution uh, to Venezuela's problems. Um, I want to thank you both for your testimony. Um, there is an ongoing vote, and so we will have a brief pause before the second panel is called up. Uh, for their testimony, but to both of you, thank you very much. We will stand in a brief recess until the chair returns from voting, and then we will begin with the second panel. Thank you. Excuse me, could I, could I ask, I, I, I excused you too soon. You almost got out the door, I, I, but, but I was informed that the chair may have some additional questions for the panel. Uh, there, there's a second vote, and he's on his way back, so if you could just hang close before you're dismissed, but then we will move right into panel two. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your patience where the committee will come back into order. Um, members may come in and out as we just finished the second vote, so hopefully some folks will be able to make it back here. There's some other committee meetings going on as well. So, uh, Before I dismiss this panel, and I appreciate your time and your patience indulging us here with these votes that are coming in, Mr. Smith, I want to do touch upon a couple issues with you in regards to the nature of this regime. So Ambassador Brownfield, the Assistant Secretary, Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, has been quoted as saying in that uh, recent media reports about the Venezuelan government's complicity with cartels were not inconsistent with the evidence um, with regards to, to their work uh, in drug trafficking. And I wanted to share with, with you something that I hope we'll continue to look at. Actually, this is for both of you that I hope you'll continue to look at. There's a, a law enforcement advisory that went out in February of this year. And I want to read from it, but or paraphrase from it. But basically, it said that uh, there's reporting that indicates that government officials in Venezuela coordinate flights carrying bulk cash to the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, that the source of these funds include funds that are donated by the Venezuelan Arab expatriate community, but the bulk of the cash includes money that Venezuelan officials collect through the trafficking of drugs and exacting bribes from other drug traffickers uh, who land cash-laden planes in Venezuela. This, by the way, is part of a longer-standing Venezuelan support of the Assad regime, as, as was reported back in 2012. Uh, the state-owned company, Petróleos de Venezuela, PDVSA, PDVSA, that was discovered that there were tankers in Syrian ports. This was discovered and disclosed, by the way, by an economic research firm that tracks maritime satellite data. What, what do we know? What any, any of you tell us about the links between this, the Maduro regime and the government of Syria under Assad? Do we have any information on that you could share? I don't have any information I can share. We've been tracking the, um, the disturbing activities of members of the government of Venezuela, and we've linked them publicly to narco-trafficking activities, um, and we have also linked them to other, other disturbing activities that we've been able to highlight in a variety of regimes we have not designated pursuant to our Syria authorities. Well, this information, again, is produced by U.S. law enforcement agencies. They're obviously available to you. I would encourage you to look at them as we move forward. These are important pieces of information that we shouldn't be ignoring and should certainly figure into our calculus. There is also links to Iran and Venezuela. My office has received reports that there is a collusion between the Maduro regime and, the Ar and Argentina regarding operation that could facilitate a transaction with Iran that would violate UN stipulations. Do you have any information uh, on Venezuela providing Argentina with licit or illicit financial incentives in exchange for procuring Argentinian support towards this help towards Iran evading sanctions? We are aware of those uh, press reports um, and reports, uh, but I have nothing to add to it to the moment. Okay. Well, there's a report by the Washington, D.C.-based Center for, Secure for a Secure Free Society and from Canada's Institute for Social and Economic Analysis, which raises concerns about the use of Venezuela as a bridge to smuggle Iranian agents into North America. It states that Venezuelan authorities provided at least 173 passports, 
visas, and other documentation controlled by Cuba state-owned Albet to Islamist extremists seeking to slip unnoticed into North America. Have you followed up on those reports? I, I have not. There may be others uh, who have, um, but I'm not in a position to comment on it. Senator, I would just add that we have sanctions investigators that work across our sanctions programs, including Iran, um, Syria, narco trafficking, and now Venezuela, and they follow up on all of the law enforcement and intelligence reporting to try to build cases where they can. Okay. Now I want to go through Venezuela's connection to Cuba. According to high-level military defectors from Venezuela's government, there are between 2,700 and 3,000 Cuban intelligence agents in the South American nation embedded in sectors such as the military, agriculture, finance, and petroleum refinery. According to high-level military defectors from Venezuela's government, the Cubans have modernized Venezuela's intelligence services, both the SEBIN, which is the Bolivarian National Intelligence Service, that reports directly to the president and also military intelligence. They've also set up a special unit to protect Nicolas Maduro. Last year, former Venezuelan intelligence agents and sources with direct access to active officers of the Bolivarian Armed Forces told El Nuevo Herald newspaper that Cuba plays a leading role in the repression unleashed by Maduro against Venezuelan protesters. The Cubans are in charge of operations which range from security around the presidential palace to planning of arrests of opponents. These Venezuelan sources told El Nuevo Herald that Cubans have planned the operations of between 600 and 1,000 armed men armed men who comprise the Chavista paramilitary group known as the Colectivos. In 2007, Juan Jose Ravilero, head of Cuba's Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, the CDR, very similar to the Colectivos, claimed that there were over 30,000 members of Cuba's Committee for the Defense of the Revolution in Venezuela. According to investigations by independent Venezuelan journalists, the Cubans have computerized Venezuela's public records, giving them control over the issue of identity papers and voter registration. The Cubans have representatives in the ports and airports and have taken part in the purchases of military equipment. A state-owned Cuban company, Albet Ingenieria y Sistemas, received $170 million to develop electronic data systems in Venezuela. Through Albet, the Cuban government has been given access to Venezuelan databases from which it could modify and even issue documents to citizens of other countries. Its portfolio includes the Maduro Communications Office and operating systems for prisons, emergency services, hospitals, and police. Are you aware of the links between Venezuela and Cuba that go as deep as what I've just outlined? And if so, uh, what have we done or are doing to continue to monitor that and call attention to it? Senator, the, the links between Cuba and Venezuela and the links between Cuba and Venezuela's intelligence services uh, and military and a variety of other social missions um, is well known. Um, many of the things that you have said uh, I am very familiar with. Some of them uh, I, I am not. Um, but the fundamental reality that there's a close uh, relationship between both countries is very evident. Well, let me ask you this. As you would agree that the Venezuelan government under Maduro is repressing its own people, right? Yes. You would agree that the Cubans are helping the Venezuelans in putting in place the systems of repression? 
I think that the kind of advice the Cubans uh, provide um, is not necessarily the most democratic. Well, what does that mean? The, are the Cubans helping the Venezuelans repress their own people? Are the Cubans assisting the colectivos, the, these armed groups of not irregular groups on the ground that are used to confront protesters and, and other such activity? Uh, I am personally not aware of a link between the Cubans and the colectivos. Uh, I am aware of the link between the colectivos and the use of, by the Maduro government of the colectivos uh, to uh, um, repress uh, peaceful demonstrators. I think that is very clear. Okay. Are you aware that the Cubans are intricately involved in issuing documents in Venezuela, such as uh, voter registration, passports, and not just to Venezuelans, but to, to non-citizens of Venezuela as well? Would you acknowledge that that's happening? I would ha um, I am aware of some levels of cooperation that you're talking about. Uh, Mr. Lee, is Venezuela in your portfolio? Would you yes, it is, sir. And the Cubans, everyone in Venezuela, in fact, anyone who looks at it realizes the Cubans are crawling all over the place in Venezuela. There are tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Cubans all over the country and, and, and embedded in every sector of the government. I mean, anyone who comes back from Venezuela tells you that repeatedly. How can this be part of your portfolio and you not be aware of the enormous Cuban presence that exists in Venezuela? Senator, I did not deny that Cuba has an outsized influence in Venezuela. Um, it is clear that they have a long-standing and deep relationship in a variety of areas, including uh, in the intelligence services, including in the military, including a wide variety of government agencies that we're perfectly aware of. So if you acknowledge that they have an outsized influence and they're involved in intelligence and security agencies, why is it, why can I not, why can you not just state today what everyone knows, and that is that the Cuban government is actively assisting the Venezuelan government in suppressing its people? That's what the Cubans are expert at in Venezuela. What else could they be contributing to the effort? That is what they're best known for on the island. That's, that's what they have most uh, established expertise at doing to their own people in Cuba. So you have a repressive regime in Cuba that for over 55 years has actively repressed its own people and, and, and cut down on all sorts of uh, activity on the island. They are, have an outsized influence in Venezuela. They have an outsized influence in both its intelligence gathering and its uh, security agencies. Why is it not a logical thing? Even if you didn't have specific facts, which I'm sure you do, but even if we did not have it, why, is it not a, why isn't it not a reasonable assumption that the Cubans are actively assisting the Venezuelan government in suppressing the people of Venezuela? The fundamental um, responsibility for um, what happens in Venezuela is the Venezuelan government. Um, that the Venezuelan, and really, if we're going to focus on where the blame is, it should be for the Venezuelan's government's own actions against its own people. Um, and I think uh, we, we need to focus on holding the Venezuelan government responsible for its actions. No one disputes that, Mr. Lee, but the question is not whether the Venezuelans are ultimately responsible. Ultimately, they're the ones that ask for the assistance and are putting it into place. The question is whether the Cubans are assisting the Venezuelan government in putting in place the mechanisms that the Venezuelan government is using to repress the people of Venezuela. You cannot answer that question today? 
I think the Venezuelan government um, charts its own course, takes advice from the Cubans on certain things, but fundamentally it's the Venezuelan government that charts its own course um, for good, for ill, uh, whether effectively or feckless. Okay, well, Mr. Lee, I think what's obvious here is that you can't say what everyone knows, and that is that the Cuban government is helping the Venezuelan government do this, because on the one hand, while we're sanctioning Venezuelan government officials, we are lifting sanctions on Cuban officials that have made this possible. And so at the end of the day, it, it truly is amazing to me that in this hearing, the individual responsible for this portfolio on behalf of the U.S. government refuses to state on the record that the Cuban government is intricately involved in helping the Venezuelan government to, to repress its own people. This is a claim we've been willing to make about multiple countries around the world. This is a claim we've made about the Cubans in the past. This is a claim that we've made about the Cubans and, the, and that the State Department has acknowledged up until December of last year uh, when suddenly they stopped talking about it. I just find it unbelievable that we cannot get somebody from the Department of State who is responsible for this portfolio to openly acknowledge that the Cuban government is providing extraordinary assistance to the Venezuelan government in suppressing the people of Cuba and suppressing the people of Venezuela. And, and I, I hope that you'll reconsider. I hope the State Department will reconsider acknowledging that because it, is every, it undermines our credibility as a nation to turn a blind eye to the role that the Cuban government is playing in the suppression of the Venezuelan people. The people of Venezuela are fully aware of it. There isn't anyone that gets off a plane from Venezuela that doesn't tell you there are Cubans everywhere. And there are Cubans everywhere on the island involving governmental functions. Multiple people from Venezuela will tell you that when you go get a passport or any document, it is oftentimes a Cuban behind the counter that is coordinating it all. And to somehow think they're there as a benign force for purposes of providing moral support is quite frankly absurd. And so I hope that you'll reconsider your answer in the days to come because it is clear to everyone who knows anything about this and you know a lot about this, that the Cubans are helping the Venezuelans carry out these, these uh, operations that they're, that, they're, that they're taking against their own people. I th with that, I think we're done with questions, and I appreciate both of you being here today. We'll call up our second panel. And before we welcome the second panel, I'd like to ask unanimous consent that a letter by Ms. Maria Eugenia Tobar, who's the mother of Genesis, Genesis Carmona Tobar, who was murdered by a gunshot on February 18, 2014, while participating in a peaceful demonstration in Venezuela, be included in the record. Now let me welcome the second panel. Douglas Farah is a president of IBI Consultants and a senior non-resident associate of the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He works as a consultant and subject matter expert on security challenges, terrorism, and transnational organized crime in Latin America, both for the U.S. government and the private sector. Santiago Cantón is an executive director of Partners for Human Rights at the Robert F. Kennedy Hum at the human at Partners for Human Rights at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center. Mr. Cantón manages programs around the globe that promote and protect human rights and strengthen democratic processes through strategic litigation, capacity building, and advocacy initiatives. Dr. Christopher is the senior director of policy. Dr. Christopher Sabatini, I'm sorry, is the Senior Director of Policy at the Americas Society and Council of the Americas and Founder and Editor-in-Chief of the Hemispheric Policy Magazine, Americas Quarterly. Dr. Sabatini chairs the ASCOA Rule of Law Working Group. He has served as an advisor to the World Bank and the U.S. Agency for International Development. I welcome all three of you here, and I'll begin with you, uh, Dr. Sabatini. 
first of all, thank you, Senator, uh, for the invitation. Thank you also for your uh, dedicated commitment to speaking out on human rights violations in Venezuela and your commemoration just recently of the start of the peaceful protests a year ago. Um, and of course, the legislation that led to the executive orders. Um, I'm gonna talk about three things today. The first is the political and economic situation in Venezuela. The second is the very sad lack of a regional response to the deterioration in that situation. And the last is the recent US executive orders um, that uh, came and caused such a, a commotion, if you will, in the region. First, the political and economic situation in Venezuela. As all of the people said, it is likely to get worse. 16 years of economic mismanagement and incompetence have wreaked havoc on the Venezuelan economy. There's greater concentration in the economy on oil. It now represents 95% of exports and lower productivity of that oil. In addition, there's a huge public sector deficit. There's over $8 billion that the Venezuelan government will have to pay to foreign creditors this year alone with only about $20 billion in the central bank. And according to different estimates, Anywhere, oil has to be anywhere between $100 to $200, $120 a barrel um, per barrel to be able to meet the government's expectations when, of course, it's around $50 a barrel. The IMF, as you mentioned, Senator, is expecting a contraction of the economy this year, 7% on top of a contraction of 2.8%. And in addition to the inflation rates we've talked about, people are now actually saying by the end of this year, inflation may reach triple digits. What makes this worse is the level of political confrontation. At every turn, when things have gotten worse, when this government, people hope and expect it to moderate, whether it was when the Chavez lost a referendum, or whether it was a close election with Maduro, who only won by about 1.5% of the vote, people thought he could follow a more moderate course. He did not. When the going gets tough, he confronts. And that's been precisely the problem, and I expect because of that, the economic and political situation will get worse. Which brings me to the regional response. Despite multiple commitments among multilateral organizations to defend and protect human rights, the regional community in Venezuela has been mute. What that means is that by standing aside, as, as this president disarticulates democratic institutions, attacks political opponents, and jails um, mayors, the regional community has been an enabler to the violation of human rights in Venezuela. That has to be recognized, and yet they are violating their own commitments through a number of multilateral organizations. The only voice, voices that have spoken up were Juan Manuel Santos, of the president of Colombia, and five former presidents who signed a letter just last week expressing their concern about the confrontation, including Oscar Arias Sanchez, including former President Zedillo Calderon, and Fernando and he Cardoso. But, which brings me to the executive order. It's important to distinguish, as everyone has so far, that these are only very targeted sanctions against people. Unfortunately, the language that was used as a result of bureaucratic boilerplate became a red herring. But what's really sad about this is that in 2009, the U.S. Pulled the, pulled the visas of 15 Honduran officials of the de facto government of Micheletti. At that time, they didn't use the language they're using now of calling it intervention or impertinent intervention in the internal affairs of a country and respecting national sovereignty. They applauded that decision. I think it's worth asking regional leaders in the hemisphere, why is it okay to pull visas of a de facto government that came to power in a coup in Honduras, but why are they not willing to sort of stand by the U.S. when it does the exact same thing in Venezuela? And what is wrong with allowing 
a government to be able to say to human rights abusers, we don't want you to come to Disneyland. We don't want you to do your banking an hour. Again, I would like to say that I think this is very, very sad moment in terms of the regional commitment to democracy, which was eroded when over only 15 years ago, they stood up collectively and denounced violations, very same violations by Alberto Fujimori and rolled them back. More in depth, I'm also concerned about the way the media has portrayed this. Again, the language around the executive order was problematic. But the media has presented this as giving Maduro steam, as building, giving him sort of bait to be able to uh, roll back uh, democratic institutions and build new pol political momentum. The truth is, that isn't true. His disapproval rating still stands at 70%, and his approval rating still stands at 23%. In other words, this has not become a political boon to the president, but yet regional leaders and the media insist on that it is. I would end on one last point. While the language about Venezuela being a national security risk may have been a, a little overblown, I would argue that it is a security risk in the region. For the first time, we face the specter of a failed state in a large South American country just south of us. And that is unprecedented, and getting out of it and how you would rebuild eventually is unimaginable. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sabatini and Mr. Canton. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to appear before you today to share some information regarding the human rights situation in Venezuela. I have presented in a 20-page written statement with very detailed information about the human, human rights situation. <clears throat> so in this uh, brief presentation, I will just refer to the most important uh, uh, violations. The rule of law in Venezuela has been in a downward spiral for the last 15 years. The signs of this decline have been unequivocal increasing concentration of power, lack of independence of the judiciary, restricting freedom of expression, excessive and lethal use of force and other forms of restriction to peaceful assembly, widespread use of torture, restricting civic space and financing of NGOs, and prosecuting under false charges political opposition leaders, and closing the door to any outside monitoring. Violations for freedom of expression. Journalists face constant threats and harassment. The state exercises tight control over media outlets and has been ranked 137 out of 180 countries in the 2015 World Press Freedom Index. The UN Secretary General, the High Commissioner of Human Rights of the UN, and the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression of the UN have criticized the Venezuelan government for limiting free expression. Over 259 incidents of threats and harassment of journalists were reported between January and April 2014. In recent years, state authorities have tightened uh, restrictions on television and radio through forced closures, fines, judicial cases, and economic pressures. From uh, 2013, from 2014, 13 newspapers stopped operating, and many more are at risk of closure now due to print paper shortages that the government is responsible for. Violations to freedom of association and assembly. Peaceful opposition protesters are routinely violently assaulted by the Venezuelan police and military, the latter of which was recently granted explicit power to use force to control peaceful demonstrations. Law prohibits Venezuelan human rights defenders from receiving international support if they defend political rights or monitor the performance of public bodies. Protests have reignited since, since last February of this year, Violent repression and the use of military force during these demonstrations have already resulted in a fatal victim. On February 24, Clubert Roa Nunez, a 14-year-old high school student, was killed by a gunshot to, to the head. 
lack of judicial independence. Since the National Assembly passed a law that increased the membership of the Supreme Court from 20 to 32 justices, its members have publicly rejected the principle of separation of powers and the judiciary has acted as another arm of the executive branch to advance the government's political agenda. Arbitrary arrests and detentions. According to the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights of the UN, more than 70 people have been arbitrarily detained or arrested in Venezuela over the last year alone. According to official information, approximately 3,000 people were arrested between February and June 2004 in the context of the public protests that took place across the country. Many were denied access to a lawyer and some remain in pre-trial detention for several months, since uh, dozens of students remain also in detention. One of the individuals that were arrested in connection to the February 14, uh, 2014 protest is Leopoldo Lopez, leader of the opposition party Voluntad Popular. He has remained in pre-trial detention with fabricated charges. A month after, the mayor of San Cristobal, Daniel Ceballos, from the same party was also arrested. In August 2014, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detentions concluded that the detention of both Lopez and Ceballos was arbitrary and demanded its release. Recently, a couple of months ago, the Committee Against Torture of the UN also demanded the release of them. One year after Leopoldo Lopez's arrest, Caracas Mayor, mayor Antonio Ledesma, the second most voted person in Venezuela after Maduro, was also arrested on fabricated charges. Torture and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment in prisons. The UN Committee Against Torture expressed alarm regarding reported acts of torture and ill-treatment of persons arrested in connection with the demonstrations of February of last year. These acts of torture include beatings, electric shocks, burns, suffocation, sexual violence, and threats. Just earlier this month, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights granted protective measures in favor of two political prisoners in the tomb prison that you referred to it, Senator. It is important to note that these type of measures are only granted in extreme cases of urgency, gravity, and threats of irreparable harms. Then there is the violation of political participation. I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna finish uh, very quickly this, uh, with this presentation. Uh, there is a violation of the right to political participation. As you know, Leopoldo Lopez was, uh, was not alone to run, to run uh, in the election. Uh, and in addition to Leopoldo Lopez, just recently Julio Borges, another member of the opposition, was also expelled from Congress. Maria Corina Machado was expelled a few months ago. So there is very difficult opportunity for the opposition to participate freely in politics. Mr. Chairman, the disregard by the Venezuelan government of the human rights of its people is absolute. The human rights situation in Venezuela is critical and not only for opposition leaders, but for the population in general. The report by the UN Committee Against Torture from last December indicates that almost 1,300, and I insist 1,300 extrajudicial killings took place in Venezuela between, 2000, between 2012 and 2013 and the prevailing impunity does not contribute to improve the situation. According to government information of, uh, to government information of the approximately 30,000 human rights violations reported to the authorities between 2011 and 2014, only 3% have been prosecuted. The account I, I, just, I have just presented is only but a fraction of the grave and systematic violations that are taking place in Venezuela. It is time for the international community to ensure through multilateral and bilateral efforts that democracy and the rule of law are respected. In 2001, the hemisphere adopted the Democratic Charter to address challenges such as the ones Venezuela is going through. The US government should work together with the OAS and UNASUR and the leaders of the region
to ensure that the democratic charter is respected. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Farrell. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, for the chance to be here today to discuss the accelerating crisis in Venezuela and its implications for the United States and regional security. I speak only on behalf of myself, and my views are not necessarily those of CSIS or ISC. I want to focus on Venezuela's regional role rather than its internal problems, because I believe this is where the strategic threat to the United States actually resides. There is little doubt that Venezuela has for a decade now posed a significant threat not only to U.S. security interests in the Western Hemisphere, but to the survival of democracy and the rule of law in the region. A recent investigation by Veja, a respected Brazilian magazine, shows that Venezuela, with the help of Argentina, actively tried to help Iran's nuclear program in violation of international sanctions. More than a dozen Venezuelan officials, officials have been publicly identified by U.S. law enforcement as being directly involved in drug trafficking or the support of terrorist groups. The threat originating in Venezuela is not confined to Venezuela. The late Hugo Chavez, acting in concert with his allies Rafael Correa in Ecuador, Evo Morales in Bolivia, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, and Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, set out to redefine the political landscape in Latin America. And to a large degree, they have been successful. Unfortunately, the changes wrought under the banner of socialism for the 21st century have brought massive corruption, rising violence, and repression. Venezuela is the indisputable leader and primary access around which the others revolve. Venezuela and its allies have moved perilously close to becoming criminalized states, that is, states where the senior leadership is involved with and act in concert with transnational organized crime groups as a matter of statecraft. The Maduro administration is the central component of a multi-state ongoing criminal enterprise carried out in concert with Iran and a growing Russian presence whose primary strategic objective is to cling to power by whatever means necessary and harm the United States and its allies. In this endeavor, it has embraced the FARC, Hezbollah, Eta of Spain, the Sinaloa cartel, and other terrorist and, and drug trafficking organizations, and I repeat, as a matter of state policy, not as rogue elements acting on their own. The stakes in the unfolding crisis in Venezuela for U.S. interests and the survival of democracy in Latin America are high. The consequences of the growth of this poisonous Bolivarian criminal enterprise is lethal. Few understood this better than Alberto Nisman, the courageous Argentine prosecutor who was investigating the 1994 Iran-backed bombing of the Amia Jewish Center in Buenos Aires. Before being murdered on January 18th, Nisman had documented the Bolivarian Iran uh, ties across with the Western Hemisphere, including two attempted attacks by, backed by Iran in the United States. Iran, identified by successive U.S. administrations as a state sponsor of terror, has expanded its political alliances, diplomatic presence, trade initiatives, military and intelligence programs in the Bolivarian axis, primarily through its deep ties with Venezuela. The Iranian constitution, first pointed out to be by, by Prosecutor Nisman, is an extraordinary document in which Iran stakes its claim to world domination in the name of Allah. The preamble to the Iranian constitution states, and I quote, with due consideration for the Islamic elements of the Isla Iranian revolution, which has been a movement for the victory of all oppressed peoples who are confronted with aggressors, this constitution shall pave the way for, for, for the perpetuation of this revolution within and outside the country. This constitution seeks to lay the groundwork for the creation of a single world nation and perpetuate the struggle to make this nation a reality for all the world's needy and oppressed nations. That's quite a statement for a constitution. This is the country with whom Venezuela and the Bolivarian states have chosen to ally themselves while seeking to eradicate U.S. influence. U.S. influence is being replaced by a lethal doctrine of asymmetrical warfare inspired by authoritarian government seeking perpetual power and nurtured by Iran and its overt desire to violently spread its brand of Islamic revolution. 
In addition to serving as a gateway for Iran's presence in the region, Venezuela has also been the primary conduit for Russia's growing presence in the region, something that is of growing concern in our, in, our, in our national security community, and I deal with this at length in my written statement. In my written te testimony, I detail many of the other cases to substantiate the statements that I uh, make here. But I want to close with the words of the legendary Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau as he retired in 2009 after decades of public service, including the pursuit of numerous and ongoing criminal investigations into the Venezuelan government's criminal activities. He said, let there be no doubt that Hugo Chavez leads not only a corrupt government, but one staffed with terrorist sympathizers. The government has strong ties to narco-trafficking and money laundering and reportedly plays an active role in the transshipment of narcotics and the laundering of narcotics proceeds in exchange for payment to corrupt government officials. Under the even less competent hands of Nicolas Maduro, the situation described by Morgenthau six, months ago has got, uh, six years ago has grown considerably worse, as has the threat. Thank you very much. Thank you, all three, for being here. Let me start with you, Dr. Sabatini. I wanted to ask you why you have shared in your testimony something that Senator Boxer brought up earlier, and that is the silence of communities in, in Latin America and in the Western Hemisphere to what's happening in Venezuela. You, you compared it to the Honduran case that occurred back in 2009, if I'm correct, and, um, and, and how that was met. Why, in your mind, is such, why, why the silence from virtually everyone in the hemisphere, with the exception of President Santos, who condemned a specific arrest? But why the silence? It's a good question, Senator. I have several theories. Uh, I think first, there, is, uh, there has occurred in the last 10 years a proliferation of new regional organizations led primarily by Brazil. There's the South American Union, UNASUR, then there's the uh, Latin American Caribbean Union, CELAC. Um, all, both of those are intended to sort of marginalize the United States from those discussions and not to wax too <laughs> too academic here, but those institutions actually lack a fundamental element of a multilateral institution. They do not ask their member countries to surrender any part of their sovereignty for a larger collective good. If you look at their founding documents, if you look at their statements, they always talk about how national sovereignty is supreme. So I actually think that we have gone backwards in the region. We talk about popular sovereignty. We're back to the point when Latin American countries assert this principle of non-intervention which can have very dangerous consequences because those, that principle of popular sovereignty evolved after World War II to protect the horrendous things that happened in the Nazi Germany. So I think, first of all, there's been actually a philosophical institutional shift within the region. Second, I think that the region is simply does not want to have the United States involved and is actively seeking to marginalize to do that. Um, to give an example and to refer to what was said earlier about the need for election observation, be very careful. UNASUR's election observation program explicitly says that they are there to accompany, to accompany the electoral commission, which if your electoral commission is vitiated or politicized means you're just going there as a rubber stamp. So it's very important who monitors those elections. And on the last point, there is certainly a level of, of of ideological sympathy and affinity with a number of these governments with the Chavez, which is a shame. Because while I believe Dilma Rousseff and the PT may be a genuinely leftist, even social democratic government, basically Venezuela is a military government led by a group of thugs. But unfortunately, they cannot make that distinction. And one last point, there are also very tight economic relations between. Brazil benefits deeply from agricultural exports, 
um, investment in infrastructure and other things that sort of have made it very, very difficult to break its ties with Venezuela. Dr. Sabatini, you also talked and touched upon the drug trade. And as we know, if you watch the flights that come out of Colombia and South America and inner Central America and ultimately are transited into the United States, many of them overfly Venezuela. It is hard to believe that those flights are occurring without the knowledge of someone in Venezuela. In fact, the allegations and some of the proof is very clear that the Venezuelan government actually allows these flights to pay for protection money in exchange for being able to use airspace in Venezuela. If you don't pay the protection money, you may be shot down. If you pay the protection money to either a corrupt individual or to the Maduro government, you can overfly that, that airspace. Is that an accurate assessment of the role Venezuela is playing in the drug trade? It's a very accurate assessment. If we look at a map, uh, basically Venezuela is crosshatched by flights that are coming from Colombia or leaving from Venezuela, mostly to go to West Africa, but now increasingly going to the Caribbean. Again, raising, raising the two points. One is why Venezuela is, as you say, uh, since it is so closely tied to the drug trade at a state level, and particularly at a military level, um, why this is a security risk to the region. And so Brazil and other countries ignore what's going on at their own peril. They will be most affected. And it, not coincidentally, one of the highest per capita consumers of cocaine today is Brazil. Mr. Cantone, you described a Venezuela where there's no freedom of expression, where there is no freedom of assembly and association, where there's a lack of any sort of judicial independence, where there's arrests and detentions of opponents of the government, where there's degrading and cruel treatment of those opponents when imprisoned. Um, so going deeper than that, we know that if you're a member of the opposition, you have virtually no access to the airwaves, no independent press. They're denied things like bulk paper imports so they can't even print. Uh, you're forced to sell to owners that are friendly to the regime. Just a moment ago, I struggled to get the Department of State of the United States to acknowledge that Venezuela was no longer a democracy. In essence, democracy is more than just elections. Why should I continue to consider what they have in Venezuela today as a democracy, given the fact that all of the, beyond having an election, which may or may not be even valid in some cases because of, of manipulation of the ballot, all the other underlying conditions of a democracy are not present. In essence, there cannot be a democracy unless both sides have free and fair access to the people who vote. Why should I, con is Venezuela still a democracy? That's a, you know, excellent question. It's more academic than practical to some extent. I. Maduro is president-elected by the popular vote. Uh, nobody can argue against that. Maybe someone can argue that the elections were not free and fair. Uh, that's a possibility because he won only for 1.5. Uh, 1. 1. Um, but uh, he was elected by the popular vote. All the other conditions of democracy are not there. I completely agree with you on that aspect. There's no independence of the judiciary. The legislation is just a rubber stamp uh, institution, and there is constantly uh, violations of human rights in the country. So let me, I'm sorry to rephrase, let me rephrase my question this way, um, and I get your point. Let's assume, and I don't, I don't accept this, but let's assume that the election was free and fair. Right. Is, is Nicolás Maduro today governing Venezuela as a Democrat? No. Absolutely not, uh, and rather than using the word democracy that can give uh, uh, space for uh, ambiguity, I would say there is absolutely no rule of law in Venezuela. So formally, on paper and institutionally, Venezuela has a democratic form of government in how it's being governed today. It is no longer being governed as the democracy. Correct. Okay. Um, and then, Mr. Farrar, I wanted to talk to you about the national security aspects of this. Actually, before I go to you, let me just finish this with Mr. Cantonga. I know you didn't get to it or couldn't get to it in your written statement because of the limits amount of time. Can you briefly describe, uh, as, you written your, as you wrote in your testimony, 
the conditions that Leopoldo Lopez now faces in captivity. I mean, the, everybody in jail, everybody in jail in, in Venezuela is in a very, very uh, serious uh, situation and very grave situation on the personal integrity and right to life. Is he in solitary confinement? He's in solitary confinement. And only a few weeks ago, there was an attempt to get into his cell by a, bang, by a gang of facts in, in the prison. Uh, nothing unfortunately happened. Nothing fortunate happened. I spoke with uh, Leopoldo's mother only a week ago. He's in okay condition, but uh, he's, by being in a jail in Venezuela, everybody, and particularly if you are Leopoldo Lopez, your life is at risk. Is he allowed visits from his family on a regular basis? Not on a very regular basis. Uh, her mother can visit him once in a while, as well as his wife, but it's not very regular. Okay, Mr. Farrar, I wanted to talk about the national security components. First of all, I think it's important at the outset to point to something that you did, and that is that throughout the 1970s until 1993, Argentina had a robust nuclear relationship with Iran, and that the current Iranian reactors were retrofitted and upgraded with Argentine nuclear technology. Is that, that's accurate? Yes, sir. Okay, can you describe the nexus that exists today in your mind between Argentina, Iran, and Venezuela? Well, I think that uh, Iran desperately wants to get its nuclear program up and running, and it was until the 1994 AMIA bombing, there was a very close uh, exchange program between Iranian scientists and Argentinian scientists, etc. Uh, Prosecutor Niesman identified the cutting off of that uh, relationship under U.S. and European pressure in 1993 is the trigger factor that set off the AMIA bombing in Buenos Aires in, in 1994. So when Iran needed to get back in the game or wanted desperately to get back into the game, they approached Venezuela, Hugo Chavez specifically, with Nestor Kirchner, uh, the, Christina's husband and, and predecessor, to begin opening uh, the dialogue. As, Veja, as the recent Veja investigation shows, uh, President Chavez said immediately, yes, let me do this, get on it. Uh, Nestor Kirchner was not particularly interested. In 2009 with Christina, they revisited it. And they has, there was a steady flow, or there has been a steady flow, of Argentine scientists, nuclear uh, folks, going to uh, Venezuela. Uh, my understanding from talking to people very familiar with Argentina's nuclear program is that Iran has been interested in trying to recruit the entire uh, team of scientists. They don't want it ones or twos, they want an entire team and they're simply not willing to go. Uh, so that hasn't happened yet. But I think Venezuela it was the necessary bridge to bring the Fernández uh, de Kirchner government into contact with Iran and then you had the whole uh, ongoing scandal with the memorandum of understanding and other things that happened in Argentina as a result of that uh, growing uh, closeness, and ultimately you have uh, pre uh, Prosecutor Niesman's uh, accusation that the President, uh, President Kirchner and her foreign minister and others had uh, illegally agreed to with Iran to get uh, the Interpol red notices dropped against senior Iranian officials in exchange for oil, et cetera. Um, and you end up with, uh, with Prosecutor Niesman uh, dead. But I think that in that entire process, the, the main interlocutor, the bridge between Iran and Argentina has been and was very active with Venezuela, particularly uh, President Chavez while he was alive and ongoing with President Maduro. Okay, so we've established that there's a nexus there. Let me ask you about this group called the FARC, which is largely operational within Colombia. This is a drug trafficking narco guerrilla group currently engaged in, peaceful, uh, in peace negotiations with the Colombian government, but they do things like extortion and kidnapping and bombings and, and so forth as, in addition to their narco trafficking activities, correct? 
Yes, sir. They're one of uh, three uh, organizations that's both designated as a major drug trafficking organization and a terrorist organization by the U.S. government. So the FARC is, uh, is treated by the United States government as both a terrorist organization and a narco-trafficking organization. Are they not present in Venezuela? Do they not have a presence in Venezuela today? And if so, what is the nature of it? Uh, they have a significant presence. I think that uh, it captured FARC documents beginning in 2008 with the death of Raul Reyes, the FARC commander that was, who was killed in Ecuador. We got about uh, 600 gigabytes of data for the first time on the internal FARC communications. And what was shocking in that, I, I worked with both the Colombian government and, and others on analyzing a chunk of those documents. And what was uh, really eye-opening was the intense level of senior contact between the FARC Secretariat, the General Secretariat, and not only President Chavez directly, but his entire cabinet, including Diosdado Cabello, Maduro, and all the others who are still there, and his very the very intense relationship at the same level with the Ecuadorian government of uh, Rafael Correa. That was, those were the two sort of really significant findings. But we you see there that uh, the Venezuelan government not only gave them shelter, it offered to set up joint businesses with them. It helped finance many of their activities. It carried their political water for them as far as uh, trying to set up uh, these different front groups. It hosted their main front group, which is the Bolivarian, the, um, uh, the CCB, the Santa uh, Continental Bolivariana. And the founding documents are in the FARC documents that were captured, where the FARC complains that no one knows that this front group is a FARC group, but they describe how it was founded in the basement of the presidential palace with President Chavez you know, personally present. So it's a very, very organic link. It, it goes to the highest levels, and there's nothing non-state about that relationship. It is a, the FARC is viewed, much like Iran views Hezbollah, as a matter of state policy, as a non-state actor that responds directly to them. Okay, what about the links between Venezuela and Hezbollah? I think that you've seen over time something that was initially largely dismissed, uh, thanks to the D uh, Drug Enforcement Administration and their public and the cases that have become public over the last few years, you see a very very tight link. But uh, you have uh, Ayman Juma and other very specific cases where the. Uh, Hezbollah operatives were buying cocaine from the FARC, and much of that money is ending up back in places like the Lebanese Canadian Bank that have since been closed because uh, that money was detected. And it's often not as direct a link as people I discuss with in the, in the policy world would like to see. But, it's, but the money, in my mind, they said, well, are they, are they card carrying Hezbollah people that are buying the cocaine? Who cares? The money ends up in Hezbollah accounts back in Lebanon. Does it really matter whether the person who brokered that deal with the FARC has an ID card that says FARC or whether he's sympathetic enough to move that money back to Hezbollah? I don't think, in my mind, it's, uh, it, there's no distinction necessary there. But it becomes a very uh, intense policy debate within this administration over what constitutes Hezbollah. My argument is that you simply need to look where the money ends up and who, it was, who the benefited from it, and it doesn't matter who the, who the intermediaries were and identified specifically as that group. And my last question is about the state-owned company, PDVSA, Petróleos de Venezuela. How does the Venezuelan government under Maduro, the, the Maduro regime, use PDVSA as a source of influence, activity, laundering, et cetera? How is that entity used both in the region and around the world? Well, I think the, the Andorra, uh, the Bank of Andorra findings are uh, extraordinarily important because I've been hearing for the last three or four years that Andorra was where PDVSA has siphoned its money into. They have incredibly uh, tough bank secrecy laws and nothing had come out for a significant period of time. 
I think that PDVSA has become sort of the piggy bank that no longer has much uh, cash in it. But what you see is an architecture created around the region, particularly with Maduro's allies in, uh, in Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, and uh, Salvador Sanchez-Seren, and, and the, the remnants of the Communist Party in El Salvador, where you have architectures built up in which no oil is actually moved, but which they use to launder hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And simply looking at the, the financials of those companies, uh, they're absurd. There's, there are no, or almost no legal imports coming in. For example, uh, Alba Petróleos in El Salvador began with $1 million as this joint state enterprise with PDVSA owning 60% of the company and, and Alba Petróleos owning 40. They had $1 million in 2007. Their earning statement for 2013 was $863 million with no visible means of, in, uh, with no visible uh, legitimate imports. That's a rather significant increase in your, in your earnings. Daniel Ortega has said publicly that he gets $500 million a year from PDVSA essentially as a personal slush fund. So I think that, uh, and they set up with that an architecture which allows the FARC, the Sinaloa cartel, uh, Hezbollah, many other groups to launder money through the architecture that PDVSA has established. Okay. Um, my last question has, well, let me just ask you one more. And I alluded to this earlier law enforcement report about the use of uh, uh, shipments from Venezuela to Syria to, uh, to send bulk cash, uh, both cash raised from the Arab expatriate community, but also cash collected through trafficking of drugs and exacting bribes from um, drug traffickers, and that money being sent to Assad. Uh, are you aware of that report? Are you aware of those allegations? And, and if not, would that surprise you, knowing the nature of the regime? I have heard the allegations. I, don't, I have not seen documentation on it. Uh, I think that given the fact that when uh, Chavez was most active in his direct engagement with Iran, the, the direct flight they set up went from uh, Caracas to Damascus to Tehran back to uh, back to Caracas, it's clear that there's a very strong link. If you look at the literature, Chavez had a very uh, robust relationship with Assad. Uh, that has not changed. The Maduro doesn't have the money, but clearly he has the carrying on the same commitments that Chavez in, entered into. And I think that we have seen numerous cases of massive amounts of bulk cash being shipped back, usually on Iranian ships, which are untraceable once they get to Iran. And with that, some of that money would end up with Assad is not remotely. Uh, is there still a direct flight between Caracas and Tehran? No, sir. That ended in 2011. OK. So um, my last question, and I don't know who to direct this to, but any of you feel free to ask. I asked at the, at the end of the last panel about uh, Cuba's influence, and it's been in Venezuela, or is its presence in Venezuela. And while I was able to get admission that there is an outsized influence, I could not get them to admit that the Cubans were actually involved in, um, in directing or helping the Venezuelan regime, the Maduro regime, oppress their own people. So let me just ask all of you to comment on both the, the size, the scope of the Cuban presence in Venezuela. I hear from Venezuelans that are traveling back and, and others uh, that it's an extraordinary presence, that you cannot miss it. And secondly, the nature of that, to the extent you're able to comment. And I guess, Dr. Sabatino, if you have anything to add to that. I'll start first. Uh, it is real. Um, it is, and I'm going to tell perhaps an anecdote which uh, illustrates it. Um, it a regular uh, annual dinner with Cubans in the UN mission, um, who, as we all know, are spies. And one time, uh, I was sort of chiding them a little bit, saying it must be difficult to be a client state of Venezuela because they're so incompetent. And, and they, they, of course, took umbrage at the being called a client state. Um, but, and I said, and they, they pushed back. And I said, but yeah, but they, they can't manage it. You guys are real professionals. You're good spies. You do things very well. 
there's a long pause, and finally, literally, they said, yes, but we're training them, which I think is precisely the point. Um, they are training. They are deeply embedded in the intelligence services. They're deeply embedded in the foreign ministry. Um, I love that they often talk about their sharing uh, sports trainers. I don't know what sports trainers are. Um, but it, clearly that's uh, a euphemism for something else that's being, that's there. And of course they also have the medical doctors, which by the way helps underwrite the Cuban pharmaceutical industry. When I was recently on a trip to Cuba, something I had never thought of is the doctors that are being sent to Venezuela are writing prescriptions uh, for, for Cuban drugs that are then shipped. So it sort of also benefits the, the, the pharmaceutical industry in Cuba. It's real. Um, and, and it's, uh, and as I say, I have a, a first-hand account that it's, they're there to train and they're there to uh, advise. I, I agree, it is real. In the particular case of the Inter-American System of Human Rights, the information I had when I was at the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights was that uh, all the movement of uh, Venezuela to withdraw from the Inter-American System of Human Rights was uh, orchestrated by Cuba. Uh, and that uh, over the last uh, two years, as you know, uh, Venezuela left the Inter-American System for the Protection of Human Rights, and that was because Cuba initiated all the process. I would just add one thing. I, I agree with both my colleagues. Um, one of the things that the Cubans br were brought in to do, and you see it not only in Venezuela, but certainly in Bolivia and Ecuador, perhaps more pronounced because they're smaller societies, is that in those countries, and I grew up in Bolivia, if you were s someone of uh, stature and you got arrested, you had a social network that would get you out of prison. I never worried during the military dictatorships in Bolivia. If I was picked up, I was going to school with the sons of colonels. There was a social network that would get those people out. The Cubans were brought in to break that social network. They don't care who your uncle went to school with. They don't care who you went to class with. They don't care about any of that. And that has facilitated, in all three of these countries, the ability to throw people like Leopoldo Lopez in prison with no social network that can mobilize to get them out. The Cubans were brought in to essentially slice through those existing sort of safety net cords that had survived through the dictatorships and helped a lot of people uh, in, get sanctuary uh, because they, they are beholden to no one and they know it and they can just tell you to walk, you know, walk away and that's it. So it's a very important function they play besides, as, as was pointed out, being incredibly active at the very senior levels. Well, I guess I ask all these questions because while a lot of people were taken aback by the language of the president's announcement last week that Venezuela poses a national security threat, perhaps a better way to phrase it, and I understand they're constrained by bureaucratic necessities, but is not that Venezuela poses a threat per se. The people of Venezuela have no animosity towards the United States, at least the vast majority, the enormous and overwhelming majority and certainly don't pose a threat to the country. But the Maduro regime, as has been described here today, is an anti-American one, is a serial human rights violator, is one that governs undemocratically. Um, it's one that is helping uh, through, has and, and may continue to be helping Iran try to evade uh, international sanctions and advance its nuclear program. It's one that's involved in uh, aiding uh, both a terrorist and narco group called the FARC by giving them safe haven and support within their own territory. It's one that's involved, by the way, in, in openly providing safe passage for drug traffickers, for drugs that are ultimately destined for the United States. It's one that actively supports financially Hezbollah. And it's one that uses its state-owned enterprise to foment and support uh, anti-American governments in the region. Uh, and last but not least, it's one that's completely infected by a foreign government uh, that has flooded it with sports trainers, or is more accurately known as uh, spies and uh, agents of repression, 
that allow it to crack down on its own people and also further the interest of that country over that of the people of Venezuela. That sounds like the Maduro regime is not an insignificant threat to the national security of the United States when you view it in this context. This is not just a nation that is failing economically because of incompetent leaders, and it is certainly that, but it is also one in the grips of a regime that actively supports global terrorism, that actively supports one of the most dangerous developments of the last 20 years, which is Iran's nuclear ambition, that actively supports a group that's both a narco-terrorism group and also an, a, just a flat-out terrorist group. It's one that, uh, that, that uh, and that one that represses its own people brutally with the assistance of the Cuban government. This does not sound to me like something that should be taken lightly, despite the fact that it doesn't receive the attention it deserves. It does sound like, not Venezuela, but the Maduro regime poses a real national security risk, not just to the United States, but to the region. Would anyone disagree with that assessment or elaborate on it? I, I, I agree. Uh, <clears throat> but the issue is how to address that, that, that problem. And uh, I believe uh, the U it's better if the U.S. acts together with the other countries of the region, with o the OAS, with UNASUR, that acting alone. I'm in agreement, and we were discussing with Chris this before, I'm in agreement with the sanctions. But it's important for the U.S. to have a very active diplomacy with the OAS and UNASUR. Over the last uh, next few months, there are very important issues happening in the region. There is a new change of the Secretary General of the OAS. The last Secretary General, Jose Miguel Insulza, failed during 10 years. You know, the, his, his tenure at the OAS is the same time of the, 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 the weakness of uh, the, the, the you know, destruction of uh, democracy in Venezuela. There is the Summit of the Americas in just a couple of weeks, and there is the election internally in Venezuela. So I think it is important for the U.S. to work together with the other countries of the region. I know it's not easy. I know this is not the best timing, but it's the best way to approach the situation in Venezuela. And Mr. Canton, I would not disagree. I would love nothing more than to see the nations of the region condemn what's happening in Venezuela. I would love to see nothing more than at, than at least one country, at least one, come forward and say what's going on in Venezuela is outrageous and as a neighboring country we're outraged by it. Uh, the problem is that we haven't seen any of that occur and in the interim U.S. national security is at stake and so in, in fact as, as Senator Menendez pointed earlier a few about a year ago the administration did not want to do sanctions because they wanted to give time for this UNISOR process to work and the problem with that process of course was that they went in and basically treated both sides as moral equals when they were not. One side was unarmed civilians protesting conditions in Venezuela, and the other side were armed with sticks and clubs and guns and were beating them, and they also happened to have the power of government on their side. And uh, so while I agree with you, and I share with you the hope that we would be joined by other nations, uh, recent history doesn't hold much hope that that's gonna happen, and I think it's to the great shame of the nations in this hemisphere who stand by silently and are watching this happen. Anyone else care to elaborate on um, what my statement a moment I, ago? I would, I would fully agree, and I, I wrote a paper that the Army War College published in 2012 saying that the criminalized states of Latin America should be considered a tier one national security threat. And I think that that has been, because not only, as I said in my testimony, not only in Venezuela, it's a network of countries now acting in concert with extra-regional actors, with the primary unifying factor in all of their ideologies is a hatred for the United States and a firm belief in their public doctrine that the use of WMD against the United States is acceptable military doctrine and necessary military doctrine. I think, because we don't take people seriously when they tell us what they want to do, that that's a serious oversight on our part, and that as they move forward, that strategic goal on their end has not changed. 
I'll just add quickly, I agree with you. And for so long, uh, this administration, uh, which I support, has first talked about the, the new era of partnership in the hemisphere. The truth is partners don't treat partners like Brazil and others are treating us. Um, they don't denounce uh, perhaps, perhaps inflammatory language, but an action that, in fact, uh, they embraced uh, only a few years earlier when it came to Honduras. I think we need to find who our allies are in the region and work with them carefully to find a comfort zone where they can start to engage in this. Because I agree with you, Venezuela is a national security threat, probably more to the region than it is the United States, which makes it all the more ironic that they're the ones who are criticizing us for saying it. Well, I appreciate your insights today. I think, if anything, this hearing, I hope, will remind my colleagues and the American people about what we're facing in our own hemisphere. Number one is just an astronomical level of human rights abuses and an erosion of democracy, which, by the way, is not only contained to Venezuela. You find that erosion of democracy in Bolivia and in Ecuador and in Nicaragua and certainly the total absence of it in Cuba. Um, it's one of those startling new developments we've seen after 20 years of democratic progress where people come to power through an election and then immediately undermine all of the institutions necessary for a vibrant democracy. It's one we've ignored for far too long. The second point is I hope people realize that in our own hemisphere there is a regime that is actively supporting and profiting from uh, the trafficking of drugs that ultimately wind up in our streets, that is actively supporting, openly supporting, elements uh, that are uh, both narco-terrorists, but also just flat-out terrorists who have killed and maimed not just people in this region, but oftentimes Americans. That in this region there is a regime that is an active supporter of, of Iran's nuclear ambitions. Uh, that in this re region there is a regime surrounded by a level of enablers and cronies who steal all this money from the Venezuelan people, who benefit from access to power in Venezuela, and then spend weekends and holidays parading up and down the streets of Miami, uh, enjoying their ill-found gains. And uh, so that's why I'm supportive of the bill we passed last year and supportive of the president's decisions. And I hope people realize that all the problems of the world are not in the Middle East. All the problems of the world are not only in Asia or in Europe. There are real and significant problems in our own hemisphere that impact life in America. And the last point I hope people will take away from today is that we believe that the future of Venezuela belongs to the people of Venezuela. In a perfect and ideal world, the world that we're pushing towards, uh, the, the Venezuelan people, through the ballot box, will repla replace these leaders with ones of their own choosing, which will help Venezuela fulfill its destiny as a prosperous, peaceful, and free country. Uh, that's not the direction it's headed in today. And while we cannot mandate the conditions in Venezuela, nor should we try, and it is not our intention to do so, uh, we will certainly should lift our voice anytime human rights are being violated, especially in such a grotesque manner. And we will certainly condemn those who are benefiting and profiting from uh, these abuses, and then coming to our own shores uh, to enjoy those benefits uh, from the money they've stolen from their own people. And last but not least, we cannot ignore, despite the recent opening, the Cuban influence in Venezuela and the role that they're playing. Nicolas Maduro recently said that the United States was planning to invade Venezuela, which anyone familiar with U.S. policy just, think, just knows how absurd it is um, and, and, and how ridiculous a statement that is. But I would say to you that there is an invasion going on in Venezuela, and it's an invasion of Cubans, of Cuban agents and Cuban government officials that have infiltrated the highest levels of its government, who provide personal protection to Nicolás Maduro and Chávez before him, who control the official documents of the government, who are training their sports department, better known as their repressive regime, and, uh, and, and these things are happening as well, and it should give us insight into the true nature of the Cuban government. With that, again, I appreciate you being here today, your insights, the work that went into your statements. Uh, the record is going to remain open until the close of business on Thursday, March 19th. For any future submissions, you may receive questions from other members, and I would encourage you to answer 
those so we can get them officially in the record. And with that, uh, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>